everyone. You're listening to The Katie Helper Show, and I'm your host, Katie Helper. If you like the show, please leave us a five-star review on iTunes. And as always, remind you that this show could not happen without the support of our listeners. To support the show, visit patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show, where for just $1 a month, you can help make the show happen. And for $5 a month, you'll qualify for great bonus content, including alternative podcast feed and rarely seen clips that aired on our live shows. Welcome to the Katie Helper Show. Thank you so much for joining us. We have a great show for you. As always, we have a couple of guests coming on, both very excited to talk to. First, I'm going to be talking to Jill Stein. And after that, I'm going to play an interview that I did with Palestinian-American historian Rashid Khalidi, who's the author of the excellent book, The Hundred Years' War on Palestine. Uh, We're also going to be talking about Israel-Palestine with with Jill Stein, but also with, uh, I'll I'll be doing some uh, analysis of of the media and clips about um, what's happening in Rafah between those two interviews. So that's what we're going to be doing tonight. And of course, as always, I would like to invite everyone to like the stream. That's a free way to support the stream and get more eyes on the stream, spread the word about the show and about the important topics that we cover. Also, subscribe if you haven't already subscribed. Uh, hit subscribe and the bell so you never miss any streams. And if you can, become Patreon supporters. That's great. Patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show. Again, that's Patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show. In fact, uh, if you're a Patreon supporter at the $5 level, you will get an extended interview with Dr. Rashid Khalidi as soon as this uh, stream ends. So. Yeah, many reasons to become Patreon supporters. You'll also get the extended interview with Max Blumenthal, where he talks about Dr. Jill Stein and why he is supporting her. So speaking of Dr. Jill Stein, I'm going to bring on our first guest. And that first guest is Dr. Jill Stein, who is a Chicago-born, Harvard-educated physician, environmental health advocate, and organizer for People, Planet, and Peace. She has led initiatives to fight environmental racism, injustice, and pollution, She's helped win victories in campaign finance reform, racially just redistricting, and environmental health. She ran for president with the Green Party in 2012 and 2016. So welcome, Dr. Jill Stein. Thank you so much, Katie. Really great to be here. Thanks for coming on. My honor. Really grateful to the heavy lifting that you've been doing on um, the key issues of our time here. Oh, thank you. Really grateful to you for all that work. Well, actually, let's talk about one of those heavy issues, which is, of course, Israel-Palestine. I want to know before we get into your analysis of that and also a discussion about what you would do as president, I was curious if you were raised as a Zionist and if you were, if you had an aha moment, which changed the way you saw Israel and Palestine. So, yes, I was definitely raised as a Zionist. I mean, what Jew grew up in the 1950s, you know, that wasn't my grandfather's name was Israel. We were active in a reformed Jewish synagogue. I went to Sunday school once a week, you know, till I was 13 or 14, something like that. And Israel was a very big deal, um, you know, and everybody was supposed to go there. For reasons I can't exactly explain, I was sort of resistant to that, maybe because it was the Vietnam War, and I was just um, suspicious of things that were being sort of drummed into you as a kid. So 
I think I was maybe the only person in my family that did not uh, go to Israel and sort of be part of that general cheerleading. Um, but, you know, the community was a very sort of socially conscious, justice-seeking community. And that was sort of the overarching thing that I got left with. So I never had exactly a wake-up moment, but, um, you know, I was never head over heels. And the family kind of went in various directions. One of my sisters was a very early advocate for Palestinian human rights way back when, and the family was at loggerheads about that, you know, um, way back, I'd say like in the seventies or so. So, yeah, I mean, it's definitely an issue and it's, it's a huge issue, uh, of course, in, in Jewish culture right now. And I have to say, I'm personally so grateful to the likes of you and Miko Peled and Jewish Voice for Peace that I think plays such an important role now in clarifying. It's not, you know, uh, it's Zionism is not Judaism. And furthermore, that Israelis are in the target hairs on this as well. And no one's future is being more imperiled by this, you know, this uh, horrific uh, conflict that really makes Israel kind of the big bad guy now and the pariah state around the world. So this is, you know, this is really a threat to everyone, including everybody in the Jewish community as well. So what are your thoughts on what Biden is overseeing in Palestine? This is a textbook case of genocide and what he's doing right now after the uh, ICJ basically said, yes, this is a plausible genocide going on right before our very eyes, they have doubled down. And by uh, basically declaring war on UNRWA, and they are, you know, just making this a genocide on steroids. And it's horrific. The invasion, which is gearing up now, of Rafa is incredible. Um, you know, it's just beyond words. It's been beyond words for a long time. And I think many of us are just kind of in shock. What can we do? This isn't just Gaza. I mean, this is sort of a, a an affront, an assault on our basic humanity that this is going on. And how do we communicate to our misleaders, our elected officials, who are just sort of operating on herd instincts here and doing what you're supposed to do, what APAC tells you to do, what the weapons industry tells you to do. It's, it's just shocking. And, you know, as someone who's been outside of the political system for a long time and very much uh, working to break the stranglehold of the two-party corporate trap, um, you know, to my mind, this is sort of now the ultimate expression of what's wrong with a political system that is essentially in lockstep and in service of empire, because what's going on there, you know, it really is a symbol of a much bigger problem. It's not as though this is the first uh, genocide that the U.S. has been conducting or been a part of it. I mean, it's unfortunately been in our DNA for a long time, but this one is just really in our faces and our iPhones and our computer screens. It's just everywhere. And, and, it really challenges us. Are we going to say this is okay? Is this the new world order? Um, you know, and, and it's shocking to think what a fall this has been from a standard of international law that many of us grew up with and thought that there would be some, 
you know, common sense of shared humanity here. And now we have, you know, what Biden and Blinken call the uh, the rules-based order. Whose rules? Our rules, which change from day to day. You know, it's just such flagrant hypocrisy. And, you know, there are two million people right now whose lives are hanging in the balance. And it's like we're on a death watch for for two million people. And it's just stunning. Uh, but, you know, regrettably, this has happened many times before. And in the um, uh, in, in Iraq, approximately a million people were killed unjustly. Uh, and in the in the follow on then to the Iraq war, that number has increased from one million to about six million by the cost of war project at Brown at Brown University. So this is not some radical fringe group coming up with some wild idea. You know, this is militarism. This is militarism and empire, and we are looking at full in the face, which is why this is not a simple road to hoe here. Uh, you know, as Ronald Reagan's uh, Department of Defense uh, Secretary Casper uh, Weinberger said, Israel is the unsinkable battleship uh, for the U.S. in the Middle East. At one point, that would have been our claim to fossil fuels. Now we got plenty of fossil fuels, and one of the, we're one of the biggest exporters. But we have a policy called full-spectrum dominance, which is the formal name of U.S. military policy. And what it says is that uh, no country will be allowed, whether ally or foe, no country will be allowed to rise, even as a regional power, that the U.S. will dominate all spaces, economic, military, you know, over the sea, under the sea, uh, in cyberspace, uh, in actual space. We will dominate all spheres all the time. That's not working anymore. We are no longer the world's dominant power. There's a real shift in uh, global alignments that's taking a place. The BRIC uh, alignment now is a whole lot bigger and they actually have a bigger GDP now than the U.S. We have to learn to play uh, as team players here. So, you know, uh, this is a change that's been long coming and unbelievably overdue. And, you know, the people of Gaza and, and Palestinians, you know, their sacrifice is just inordinate. But they are, I think, you know, they are opening a door that's critical it's not only for themselves and their survival it's really for the whole world here we have to come into a much more cooperative way of operating what about another issue that is of course you know there's so much bipartisan support for israel there's also so much bipartisan support for ukraine there's some people in the republican party who for kind of jingoistic isolationist reasons oppose this proxy war. But what are your thoughts on this war? On the Ukraine war? Yeah. And the role of the United States in it. The U.S. has really been provoking this war. I mean, Russia's invasion of Ukraine is criminal. It's murderous and all that. Absolutely. And it is to be condemned. However, we have been pushing this war for decades, really. And it was well understood. And Russia, you know, did everything possible to try to avert it. Now that it's coming to its inevitable conclusion, you know, which Barack Obama was well aware of, which was why he did not want to, um, you know, take up arms and become involved in this struggle because it's at Russia's doorstep. We mobilized and were horrified when Russia brought uh, nuclear missiles to Cuba. 
we're basically, we've brought nuclear compatible missiles right now to Russia's border and Ukraine is a very long border. And uh, this was a huge threat to Russia, you know, so it's absolutely no surprise that this has happened and it's been purposefully pursued and agreements that would have nipped this in the bud or would have averted it before the war broke out. Those were all sabotaged, basically undermined by the U.S. and dismissed and written off. So this is another tragedy. And it's worst, of course, for the people of Ukraine, who've really lost an entire generation of people, hundreds of thousands. And uh, still, there's no end, end in sight. We instigated the coup uh, at the Maidan uh, and all sorts of actions in the run-up to that. You know, um, Victoria Newland bragged about how we had spent billions of dollars, you know, uh, laying the groundwork for democracy, you know, basically sowing the seeds of conflict where what Russia wanted was neutrality, you know, just a, a, an, Aus, an Austria-type uh, relationship to Europe and, and to Russia. So now we're, you know, grinding down on this war. It's uh, hopefully drawing to a conclusion. And the peace deal will basically have the same elements that have been proposed way back with the Minsk Accords, except that now there will be greater advantage in Russia's hand because they have won a huge victory, which people with military insight were predicting from the get-go. So this is really regrettable. And it's another symptom, I think, of empire and the corruption of our leadership and the extent to which the military-industrial complex is calling the shots. And to my mind, it just, you know, it's... In the same way that Ukraine is just, you know, sort of the same principles operating in the military sphere, well, you have these same principles operating in healthcare, in pharmaceuticals, in education, uh, in insurance, in housing. It's the predators who are running the show here and have the big money to basically buy influence. That's what our political system is. And it's at a point now where it's not only disgusting, uh, but it's a real threat. You know, it is impoverishing us. The military industrial complex, you know, is consuming half of our discretionary budget, for example. Um, there's so much that we could be doing with a pittance of, you know, the $17 billion that's going to, they're trying to mobilize for Israel. The Senate just passed. Hopefully the House will stop it, not for good reasons, but because of their own you know, dysfunction, hopefully that won't pass. But there's so much money that's being thrown at this now. And oversight is being prohibited as part of the process, as was the case in Ukraine as well. There was an inspector general, which was actually proposed by the Republicans and the Democrats, you know, voted unanimously against it. It's like what's happening now turns on its head uh, the concept of the lesser evil. That's not to say that one is better than the other, but the old maxims no longer hold that it's not exclusively the Republicans that you have to be quaking in your boots about. We have to be quaking in our boots about all of them. And in my mind, it's really important to stand up to that propaganda that tells you you are powerless, that you have to accept the choices that are being rammed down your throat. These two zombie candidates who are representing a zombie political party that the American people revile. And there's absolutely no reason to put up with it. It's like this is, um, uh, this is sort of you know history is forcing us to confront 
the uh, manipulation of our democracy and, and to just say no. And instead of racking our brains about the lesser evil, we need to just start seriously fighting for the greater good and unify around that. In the words of Alice Walker, the biggest way people give up power is by not knowing we have it to start with. We have the power here, you know, and genocide is a huge wake up moment that gives the real courage of convictions to a lot of people who, for whom this is just a huge red line. 68%, according to a Reuters poll, you know, a month or two back, 68% want a ceasefire now and a diplomatic resolution. The numbers who now buy that this is genocide in spite of the wall of propaganda, that's up to 50%. You know, uh, young people in particular are leading the charge on this. So there's, there are all the ingredients here of a political transformation that's been begging to happen that many people thought would happen with Bernie Sanders. But at the end of the day, he was a creature of the system and just sort of sheepdogged people back in. So I think there's a lot of experience right now. And um, people get that this isn't just about doing the right thing. It's about doing the only thing that we can do to really uh, take back a sense of our future, not only as the, you know, because it's moral and ethical, but because our own survival very much depends on this. Right. And we're going to get into the strategy that you have moving forward and in terms of ballot access. But before we talk about that, I'm just curious, when do you give up on the two-party system? Did you grow up as a Democrat? Did you become a Green after some sort of aha moment? What was that process like? So I grew up, you know, during, during the Vietnam War. So I was never a fan of politics. You know, to me, it was always a very corrupt, um, uh, you know, just disreputable system. And so I was always outside of the political system. For me, the aha moment was realizing that if we didn't fight politically, that we would continue to be sidelined. So, you know, I was an, an activist uh, for healthcare, getting money out of politics, um, cleaning up you know, coal plants and incinerators, you know, it was really kind of the intersection of health and the environment that really, you know, I, I describe myself often as a mother on fire because it's like my sense of the right then uh, connected with kids and my own kids and seeing their generation get really sick and have a whole lot of diseases that we never had from diabetes to, you know, just huge struggles with maintaining a healthy weight, um, asthma, childhood cancers, et cetera. I'm not a pediatrician. I, I'm, I'm an internist, but, you know, I was just very tuned into that because it was my kids and their generation. And that really, um, you know, just really activated me as a purposeful activist. So I, I was a, um, uh, you know, I was practicing clinical medicine and I transitioned to political medicine from clinical in order to address the mother of all illnesses our political system, which is literally killing us. And in order to fix the things that are literally killing us from, you know, pollution to poverty to community violence and nuclear war, you know, and climate change, in order to deal with that, you know, we're going nowhere. We're going backwards, you know, and we're told to measure our progress and how we slow the backslide, you know. So I was not a fan of the political system at all. I was an activist. And as I became more and more frustrated as an activist, 
you know, we passed campaign finance reform in my home state of Massachusetts. We passed the so-called clean election system so that we could have public funding of campaigns in order to take the power out of this corruption. And we passed it by a two to one margin through a voter referendum. And then the progressive Democrats, you know, we have good progressive Democrats here in Massachusetts. They repealed it uh, on a voice vote in the legislature. And so for me, that was like really the last straw. And I was ready to be activated. At that point, I got tricked by Greens in my home state who basically tricked me into running for office, thinking that running for office would, you know, as they pitched it, well, you'll just be doing kind of the public education and mobilization around legislation and and regulation. You know, that's kind of what I was doing. They said, well, just do it in a political campaign. Of course, it's much more than that when you run for office. But that's why I, I was tricked into it and discovered that it wasn't at all what it was made out to be if you're not running as a conventional candidate. It's just a series of public conversations. And it was really so exciting and enlightening to me to see how much wiggle room there is. People don't really live in these pigeonholes that we're told we're a part of. People don't live there. Uh, we live in a much more kind of undefined and nebulous space, and there's lots of room for human dialogue. And I was just, you know, I, I entered into my first race in 2002, uh, which was running for governor against Mitt Romney, by the way, um, here in Massachusetts. I entered in out of absolute desperation because nothing else was working. And I came out of that race with a whole lot of inspiration saying, oh my God, there's this whole public forum which is being suppressed and misrepresented. And this, I also discovered that you didn't need to persuade people. Uh, about the progressive agenda, which is what I was always taught to believe as an advocate that, oh, no, people don't support, you know, clean air or, or um, you know, climate uh, action or health care. You know, I discovered, no, that's not true at all. People are totally there. It's just that they get forced into these agendas by our very corrupt leadership. So I discovered, wow, no, it's not like we have to change people's minds. We just have to learn to be strategic about how do we activate and empower people to do what they already want to do. So for me, that was just so enlightening. And, you know, I became a green because it was greens who were, um, you know, doing what I thought was really valuable and, and they still are, you know, it's not a perfect party. There are no perfect parties out there, but it is the one survivor, you know, it's like the most dysfunctional party, except for all the other grassroots non-corporate parties that have ever existed and have been wiped off uh, the political landscape. So the Greens are here, you know, and, and we keep fighting and it gets to be a a bigger, deeper and uh, more powerful fight all the time. So what is your plan? What is the way that the Greens will have leverage? So you're not going to do like, for instance, I heard Norman Finkelstein has made this point before. He wanted Cornell West to say that he was going to run and then if it looked like he couldn't win, he was going to tell Biden, OK, you want my voters, then you have to adopt these policies. You are someone who runs to the end, right? What are the goals besides winning the presidency? What are you hoping to achieve both in 2024 and then for 2028? Well, first, let me just say, I think we're really screwed if we resign ourselves to the system as it is, because where are we going, you know? We're going to 
endless war, nuclear weapons, uh, genocide is acceptable, uh, and the climate is, is imploding. And you can look in detail at Biden's policies, and their advantage over Trump is really an illusion. For example, we hear about all the great, you know, climate programs that, that Biden is enacting. Well, you know, he, he approved these 22 LNG plants, these liquefied natural gas plants, which, you know, which, which basically grew out of blowing up the Nord Stream pipeline, created a huge market. So they were able to justify, um, pushing these, these plants. Uh, some of them may have been approved beforehand, but a huge, uh, influx came, uh, as a consequence of blowing it up, which either Biden did or Biden approved, Biden gave the thumbs up for, you know, so it's, it's really got his fingerprints all over it. But then they approved this huge new influx of LNG plants and they don't have to count those emissions because they're going offshore. So, but actually the world counts those emissions and the climate counts those emissions. And the Sierra Club did an analysis showing that these plants that, that we have our, our wonderful Democratic Party to thank for, they uh, amount to 440 new coal plants. So it makes Trump look like a, you know, like a climate advocate compared to what Biden is doing here. You know, Biden has abandoned his, um, you know, his promises that he won't, uh, you know, pillage uh, public, public lands, no more uh, fossil fuel extraction on public lands or offshore. You know, all that has gone out the window. So what exactly are we protecting people from, you know, looking at what he's doing or, you know, look at his policies on war. I mean, it's been the Democrats who've been leading the charge, both in Ukraine and, um, you know, certainly uh, in Israel. Not that Trump is better, but, you know, the Democrats have really distinguished themselves by their unanimous or near unanimous votes, their refusal to allow, you know, accountability you know, the Israel aid that they're passing now will not have oversight by Congress. And, you know, it's just outrageous. So, like, what are you doing by protecting their monopoly? And you're not just protecting their monopoly. It's, it's you're undercutting your own political power. In the words of Frederick Douglass, power concedes nothing without a demand. It never has and it never will. So if you're not willing to stand up and make that demand, you know, basically people are being cowed by the Democrats' propaganda. They're very self-serving propaganda. What is it that spoils their elections? Look at their most spoiled election ever. That was 2010 in the midterms. What happened then? They lost 1,000 seats in state legislatures. They lost 64 congressional seats, 12 Senate seats, and 13 governorships. This was an absolute you know, blowout for the Democrats' stranglehold on power. The most spoiled election ever. Not a third party in the world to blame it on. There were no third party candidates. They have abandoned their base. And that election followed, you know, the sabotage of the Wall Street bailouts where Wall Street got trillions and millions of homeowners got thrown out. That's the problem the Democrats are having. What third party candidates do, so-called third parties, alternative candidates, they bring out people who otherwise aren't going to vote. You know, they tried, Hillary Clinton tried to blame me for her loss. However, the vast majority of people who voted green just would not have voted at all. So this is a plain old BS, as is their, um, you know, their propaganda about Ralph Nader as well. Exactly. Yeah. No, this is just a self-serving propaganda. And I can't believe that people, you know, who are otherwise skeptical and thoughtful buy into this and let themselves be politically neutered. 
because that's what you're doing here. You're just allowing them to ride roughshod over you and allow the status quo to continue to throw us all under the bus. So what does the Green Party have to become? How many votes do they have to get? How big do they have to become as a party to instill fear in in the duopoly? I mean, hopefully you get rid of it, right? Obviously, that's the ideal. But in the meantime, what has to happen so that the duopoly actually is perhaps influenced by the Greens? You know, I think the main thing is for us to operate strategically, both during elections and, and after elections. You know, it's like Barack Obama, you know, went to the White House with a huge set of ground troops and he could have done anything to move a progressive agenda forward. But he basically told them all to go home. And at that point, you know, it is a real allegiance became very clear. He was working for Wall Street. He really wasn't working for regular people. But, you know, whether you're in office or you're out of office, and I don't mean as a single individual, but I mean as an as a movement, if you're operating as a movement and you're strategically targeting Medicare for all, you know, say, or shutting down uh, the genocide, stopping the shipment of weapons, which long should have ended, which violates U.S. rules about not sending weapons to human rights abusers. Um, you know, there's enormous power to be actors. And as far as I'm concerned, this is all about building political power. And uh, it's not like there's some magic number at which it becomes worthwhile. And in a recent poll, in fact, we were at 5% in an ABC poll, that is, as the Green Party, we were at 5%. And that was even without having a word of influence in mainstream media. The fact that they won't touch us now, you know, and they'll touch other independents, but they won't touch Greens, because we are a force to contend with, because we can get on the ballot. And in fact, right now, we are the only uh, independent campaign, or shall I say progressive independent campaign, that's on track to be a national force in the election. We're on the ballot now in 20 or 21 states, and uh, we are actively carrying petitions right now in another 20, another 10. We have to wait for the go signal. Um, you can only start carrying petitions when the state says so. You know, it's a whole complicated set of rules because they don't want you to know. They don't want you. <clears throat> excuse me. <clears throat> they don't want you to be able to do this. Um, but we've been watchdogging this for uh, decades, actually. And <clears throat> uh, we have a proven track record to be able to do it. So I think there's a lot of fear about what the Greens can do, that we can get traction. We're not a one-off. We're not newcomers here. We know how to do this. In my last race, we were on the ballot in 47 states, and it was about 95, 97% of voters. So we are a political force to contend with. The other campaigns, so we have 20 to 21 states going on 30 uh, right now, and we're headed for 50. Uh, we've come very, very close. Um, uh, one of the states right now where we're in the process of turning in signatures is South Dakota. We've never been on the ballot before in South Dakota, and we're, and we're getting on now through the help of uh, activists in the Lakota Nation that we've just, you know, built relationships with at uh, Standing Rock and so on. So, you know, we have the power to watchdog this stuff and to move it forward. Um, the other campaigns are on one to two, one to two. That's it. RFK estimates it will cost him $20 million to get on the ballot. And <clears throat> he has a prayer of raising that. But the fact that he's kind of cozying up now with the libertarians 
suggests how hard this is. You know, and the libertarians have access to deep pockets and corporate money. And, you know, that's how they get on. Uh, no harm intended, but, you know, they, they're, they're able to do this through a different way. Uh, the Greens do this through, you know, just, um, you know, pounding the pavement and by being grassroots networks. So as a party, we are, you know, we are actually more powerful than all the other uh, small parties that have ever been around and that we can do this. And we survive to fight another day, even in spite of our being targeted for smear campaigns and fear campaigns. So, you know, this is going really well. And uh, it will cost them, it'll cost RFK 20 million, but we're already on the ballot. You know, it's like 20 states, but in those 20 states are the most difficult and expensive states like California and Texas, especially also Florida, uh, Arizona. There are several extremely expensive ones. We have one or two more of those, but most of them are behind us. So we have like 75% of the work done and it will cost us about 1 million, maybe one and a half million at the most. And if people want to make sure that there is a pro-worker, anti-war, anti-genocide, climate emergency campaign on the ballot, you know, go to jillstein2024.com and, you know, sign up to lend a hand uh, if your state is fighting one of these battles, and probably they are, or you can throw something into the hat. All that just makes a huge difference for us to get there fast, because the sooner we're on the ballot across the country, you know, the more uh, mainstream media will be forced to start covering us. Right now, they're just pretending we don't exist. Yeah. Have you had any mainstream media coverage? Um, News Nation has covered us a couple times, but like even Democracy Now! won't cover us. You know, they get a lot of their money from Democratic Party donors, and I think they don't want to um, ruffle their feathers. So, you know, they've covered Dr. West several times and they won't cover us, even though we're the ones who are on the ballot and heading, you know, heading for the whole ballot. They, um, you know, it's just we're kind of an inconvenience. Yeah. Why do you think it is that they would cover Cornell West, but not you guys? Because we're a real threat. We have ballot access. We've done it before. We're in the process of doing it right now. At the end of the day, you know, we're going to be a force to contend with. And it's very hard for a newcomer, especially a newcomer who doesn't have corporate money behind them, doesn't have their own super PAC. You know, how's RFK trying to do this through a super PAC? Who's paying for his super PAC? Half of the money in his $50 million super PAC is coming from two people. How exactly you know, do you reform money and politics and the essential corruption of our political system if you're doing the same thing? You know, it's a matter of look at what I say, don't look at what I do. But for Greens, you know, we're, we're, pretty, uh, we're pretty faithful to, uh, you know, to our, our values here. And, and we do this through a, a grassroots, the power of grassroots democracy, which is the way we've got to do it. And how does one get ballot access? What does that process entail? Carrying petitions around and getting a lot of signatures. And you have to do that with various constraints on it. You know, like in some, you have to have every petition sheet notarized by a notary public. In some states, you have to be from that state. You can't go help your neighbor's state to carry petitions. They're just different picky little nitpicky rules intended to undercut you, you know. And the Democrats recently announced that they were going to try to complicate our ballot access process. It's by looking for those little rules and trying to trip us up. And usually they make stuff up. I don't know if you followed what happened in Matt Ho's campaign. Yeah, we've had him on. But for people who didn't see those episodes, can you just summarize that? Sure. So Matt was running as a Green for Senate in North Carolina. And 
the uh, Democrats impersonated Greens and started calling people whose names that they saw were on the ballot and uh, telling them as members of the Green Party, supposedly, to please take their names off the petition. And they didn't have very good reasons for that, but they were trying to strong arm people into getting off, uh, getting uh, withdrawing their names. And that's what they do. They usually challenge our signatures. When Ralph Nader was running in 2000, well, he ran many times. I think this was his 2004 campaign. They had simultaneous lawsuits trying to throw him off the ballot in something like 20 different lawsuits at once, which were being illegally coordinated by Mark Elias, the head attorney, who is still their head kind of, um, you know, dirty tricks uh, attorney, who, again, will be on the case doing what he can do. You know, it ought to be absolutely illegal. You know, they should be in jail for doing this. This is as, you know, as authoritarian as anything that goes on in Russia. Um, you know, it's, 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 it's outrageous. And this is what they do. And they're so shameless about it. They, you know, allow this to be announced that they're hereby going to challenge us through dirty tricks. So I'd say if you care about democracy, you know, that, that on principle ought to be reason to lend a hand here and help us get on the ballot so that we can actually have a politics of integrity to vote for. And when you say it's ex- certain states are expensive, what makes a state more or less expensive? Which is a terrible thing to s- even say out loud that ballot access is expensive, but. Exactly. I know. It's like buy your way on the ballot. That's really what it is. You know, we have an election system that's completely controlled by big money. So in California, it costs many millions of dollars uh, to get on the ballot. And if you ha- if you are already an established party and you already have some threshold number of people who are registered as Greens, which we happen to do, we have that in California. We have ballot status as a party, so we don't have to petition in, in California. We already have it. Um, but like the Democrats have that everywhere uh, in California. If you don't have ballot status, it will cost you many millions of dollars. Basically, because it is a big operation. If you, even if you have trained volunteers who can carry the petitions and they know how to gather these signatures efficiently. And in California, I don't know what the numbers are because we haven't had to carry petitions there, but it's certainly tens of thousands and it may be a whole lot more than that. It could even be 50, 60, 100,000. I'm not sure. Don't, don't quote me on that, but it's a lot. In New York, where the uh, ballot requirements were, uh, uh, Kind of surreptitiously sweat, uh, snuck into a ballot, a, um, a budget bill, I think, by Cuomo when he was very pissed at the Greens uh, because we ran a very successful campaign against him that forced him then to have to make compromises uh, to regulate fracking. You know, and that's one of the benefits here. You don't have to win the office in order to win power that you can then uh, yield. But because he was pissed, he sort of snuck this into the um, legislation that raised the ballot requirement to something like 45,000 signatures in a shorter period of time, in six weeks. But when you say 45,000 signatures, they have to be validated signatures. So if the name is incorrect, it doesn't have a middle initial, whereas the uh, voter registrar has a middle initial, or your address has changed, or they can't read it, they'll, they'll strike that. They'll throw it out. So as a general rule, you want to have twice as many signatures. So that means you have to collect 90,000 signatures in six weeks. That takes a huge number of trained volunteers and then a lot of coordination because sometimes there's a very elaborate process. You have to get them uh, validated either by the Secretary of State. Sometimes you have to take them back to the various uh, counties 
and get them validated at the counties and then pick them all up and bring them to the Secretary of State. It's an incredibly make work uh, kind of process, which is mainly intended just to keep competitors off the ballot. That's how our system works. And it can be changed. It should be changed. And, you know, it's part of our uh, green agenda for, you know, reclaiming the promise of democracy, get the money out, reestablish debates, you know, create open forums, um, you know, make ballot access accessible, actually, not these outrageous prohibitive rules, and implement ranked choice voting so that fear cannot be used to extort votes, which is how the system works right now. It's extremely anti-democratic to suggest that you're a spoiler if you enlarge people's choices. If we don't have choices in our election, it's not a democracy. So it's like shocking that they they assert this propaganda, uh, you know, just without without a shred of conscience and say, you know, you don't dare do that. You have to take marching orders from the uh, duopoly that's been throwing you under the bus, you know, and please don't think about what I'm saying here, you know, because it's just, it's nonsense. Right. It does seem like this really is a moment with, with genocide. It is a moment for people who have always or have previously kind of held their noses and voted for the lesser evil. That's not working for certain people anymore. I mean, I've, I've seen people who never were, I've seen many people who were always lesser of two evil voters uh, abandon that because of the genocide. They just can't bring themselves to vote for Biden anymore. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So there is a, this, this is an opportunity here. And there's one thing on that. It's really important not to limit yourself to abandoning Biden. You know, you have to join Jill or join somebody. You know, it's not okay to just silence yourself. And they would like you to think that. They would like you to think that the solution is, oh, just don't contaminate yourself by voting for, you know, a, a, a genocide Joe. No, you have to actually have an affirmative vote. Democracy needs a moral compass. We can't get, we don't make progress unless we have an affirmative vote. If you're just voting against who you despise the most, or, you know, just like not participating in a, um, in a poisoned system, that doesn't do it. That actually doesn't move us forward. And that's what they would love. That's what they love. Remember the words of Alice Walker, that the biggest way people give up power is by not knowing we have it to start with. We have power here to win this election just based on opposition to genocide. Throw in student debt and you've got another 44 million people right there. We could fix student debt. We could fix health care. You know, there are 100 million people right now who have uh, medical debt, which also could be fixed even without fixing the health care. I mean, there are just so many solutions galore that we don't touch with a 10-foot pole because it's been you know, established by academics all over the place. You know, there's all the studies, if you want them, that uh, what drives the system is the power of money. It's not the power of our need or the power of our vision, the power of what we actually can accomplish. That is real. And it's important for us to have the courage of our convictions, especially at a, at a moment like this when, you know, the world is really going to hell in a handbasket. We really need to stand up for the way that we need to go. I'm just saying that, that that in itself is an opportunity that people are are no longer feeling obliged or obligated to vote for the, the lesser evil that opens them up to exploring alternatives. And I do think it's true if you're going to be not voting for Biden, which I'm in New York, I'm not voting for Biden. I don't even have to think about it. But if you're not voting for Biden, 
it seems a waste to not vote for someone else. You should be sending a message that way and empowering a challenge to the duopoly. So what is the relationship between you and Cornell West and Claudia de la Cruz? I've had all three of you now on my show, and you are fairly comparable in terms of your policies, it looks like. I haven't seen any major distinctions. So two questions. One is what happened with Cornell and the Greens? There's always some, you know, there are some comments in the in the chat, people suggesting certain things about whose idea it was for him to run, whether you pushed him to join the Greens, what happened there? And then what do you hope to happen moving forward with you and Claudia and Cornell? Yeah. So you may remember Cornell was kind of stuck with his very awkward situation with the People's Party. And so we came in and said, hey, do you want to run as a Green? You know, we would love to get behind you and we'll help you set up, you know, we'll help you transition and we'll do that work. We know how to kind of get a campaign up and running really fast. And uh, so he said, sure. And we did that. And, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's not so easy to build a relationship with a political party under any circumstances, but especially when you're, you know, it's like a gunshot marriage, you know, it's like, especially when you're running for president, it's really hard. It's a very uh, high stress thing. And unless you, you know, I'd say not only know the party, but unless you know the players, it's, you ha- you know, there has to be so much teamwork and trust and there's so much risk involved. If you don't have that, it's really hard to run. And people also make a lot of demands of you. If you are their candidate and they're out there, you know, pounding the pavement for you, they want to know your policies and they want to debate your policies. And that can kind of be a pain in the butt if you're uh, accustomed to being your own uh, voice and you've been an independent voice for a long time, it's a lot to come to terms with. So, you know, it just became clear that Cornell wanted to have his own voice and not be encumbered by another organization and go through all the uh, hoops of being in a political party. So, you know, he decided, I didn't know about it until he already made the decision. And, you know, and then suddenly we were informed that, you know, he would be out on Monday. And, you know, and that was fine. And it totally made sense. And I, you know, I could actually see it coming. Um, But that left us then having to scramble because if you don't use your ballot access, you will lose it. And when he walked away from the Greens, he walked away from five or six or $10 million worth of ballot lines. So how strategic a move was this? I don't know. But it will be really hard, I think, for anybody to just jump in and suddenly raise that money and get on the ballot as a force to contend with. You know, you can always get on 10 states um, if you scramble, but then you really hit the ceiling. So it's hard to say that you are actually uh, threatening empire. You know, if you want to threaten empire, you've got to be on the ballot for like at least 97% of voters. Um, So... You know, but we had a very amicable parting of ways. And, you know, we still wave uh, and say hi when we're at forums uh, together. Um, So it's, you know, and in fact, our campaign put out uh, feelers right away saying, look, we're probably going to have ballot access and we have, you know, we're going to have a a VP slot. You know, would you like to talk about that? And that doesn't seem to be going anywhere. Um, So we're still open to it, but I'm not sure that, um, you know, Dr. West has that in mind right now. Um, You know, I think you may have to, like, go through the hoops of trying to get on the ballot to actually see what it's like. Um, But as a rule, people don't get on the ballot first time around, especially 
um, unless they have big corporate sponsors. It just doesn't happen. It would be the first time. And as I said, I think they're on in one or two states right now, you know, having been in the race now for quite some time. So, uh, you know, I think the proof is in the pudding and we'll see where that goes. But it continues uh, to be the fact that we are we are on track right now for a nationwide run, a 50-state run, and we have an open slot. And I think it makes a lot of sense for us progressive parties and progressives to collaborate. And, you know, we've had some preliminary conversations with people across party lines about how that might possibly work. Um, but, you know, nothing, nothing formal uh, at this point. And what, what are your thoughts on Claudia from PSL, People's uh, Party for Socialism and Liberation? Yeah, so we've had a lot of contact uh, way before the election, and we've done a lot of stuff together. And, you know, I think she's great, you know, and our policies are pretty much identical. And, you know, we've had a lot of fun doing events together. So, you know, I, I would be really interested in exploring that possible collaboration. And speaking of strategy, so there's the issue of ballot access. And then I know there are these matching funds. Can you talk about that? Yeah. So the, you know, when you fill out your income tax, there's a little checkoff box for like $3 for, you know, a clean, cleaning up our, our election system. And the big players don't use it anymore because it comes with some constraints about how much money you can spend and so on. So they don't use it, but we do. And in order to qualify for that money, you have to raise a certain threshold of $5,000 in each of 20 states. And it's not that hard to do. We're well on the way now. We have about half the states that are close to qualifying. So once you do that, then basically that money that we've all thrown into the pot there becomes available for the purpose of enabling, um, you know, enabling candidates to be independent of big money, you know, to provide a public source. It's just a bare, you know, token of what the system should be. It should provide full funding. And, you know, there are some states that do this um, that provide really adequate funding to people who meet the qualifying criteria and enables us to have a parallel system. We should be repealing Citizens United and, you know, there should be no private money or big donor billionaire money that's running our elections. It should all be publicly funded. And with free uh, use of the public airwaves, campaigns would be a whole lot cheaper, cheaper than they are. So this doesn't have to be a big expense on the public. There are ways to do this, but we're not there now. So, you know, this public money that we do have access to is huge and makes a, a huge difference. Um, and so, you know, up to $250 will be matched for each donor. So that means all the money that we've raised so far from donors below the 250 threshold, all of that gets doubled basically the minute we qualify, which is going to really accelerate our petition drives. So again, I'd say if you want to see democracy have a real fighting chance um, to go to our website and, and help make that happen. And what about issues? I, I asked people on uh, YouTube in a post for uh, questions and it got a bunch of suggestions, but one of them was, uh, what would you do in East Palestine and Lahaina? Someone else asked about inflation and immigration. 
Great. Okay. All those really great questions. Um, so in East Palestine, we've already been working with uh, some of the victims of the and survivors, I should say, uh, of the spill, which was inexcusable. And had Joe Biden and the Democrats in Congress stood up for the railroad workers, this never would have happened. This was a big issue in the railroad workers strike. They wanted you know, adequate staffing, safe staffing, you know, like you need in an ICU. You also need that in a train, which is full of really deadly material. And they've been cut. Their staff has been cut like 30% in the last couple of years by, uh, you know, all the big corporate railroads, which are making money hand over fist. And their workers are absolutely exhausted and devastated. And their workers were going on strike. And, you know, that strike was basically busted by Joe Biden and, uh, and Congress. Uh, shameful. And as a consequence of that, you had that spill, which would not have happened had that train been adequately staffed and safety inspections been conducted. So it's outrageous. So we're going, we've been doing a number of uh, conversations with um, uh, some of the people who've been um, fighting there and we're helping them fight. You know, they should be moved out. Uh, They've been exposed to very toxic, dangerous, deadly stuff. and. they are sick. Not everybody, but some people are extremely sick. And it's outrageous that they, there's a cover-up going on. There's a real cover-up and and the EPA is part of it and it's shameful and it needs to be exposed. Um, So, you know, if we, if we were in office, if I was elected, you know, we would be treating them like a love canal and moving people out and ensuring that they have housing and that they are made whole economically because they've been devastated. Their health has been devastated and their homes have been trashed, basically. Can you explain what the love canal is for younger people? Because it sounds like a romantic destination. (laughs) Right. The love canal is a development that was built, I think, in the 50s or the 60s. And it turned out there was an old toxic waste site underneath with like a lot of dioxin and other just extremely toxic chemicals. And because of changes in the water level, water started permeating uh, under way underground beneath these homes. And that water started rising like up in some cases, flooding their basements in other cases, just off gassing uh, with the water, bringing all that toxic stuff up. And they started getting really sick and having like lots of miscarriages and cancers and, you know, terrible stuff. And it was denied for a long time. You know, this is what always happens. You can look at like the burn pits uh, in Iraq and Afghanistan or um, uh, I think Times Beach, you know, there's just any number of toxic episodes and spills that they just don't get recognized for a long time. And people are told that they're crazy, that their symptoms are imaginary. And, um, you know, the whole system is kind of used against them. But then eventually word comes out, you know, this is a problem with our whole regulatory system and that we use inherently very dangerous, toxic stuff. And we wait for a body count, you know, before we dare to, you know, inconvenience industry to, you know, clean up its act, you know, not only to take care of its waste, but just not produce stuff which is dangerous and toxic in the first place. We don't work that way. We wait for a body count and lead is the classic case led where there were millions upon millions of children who were, you know, disabled for life. Lead began when, um, uh, when lead paint was 
first used. So you had bright colors that were used on outdoor porches starting around the early 1900s. And then all of a sudden there was this rash of children that looked like they were having strokes. And everybody was saying, why are all these kids having strokes? Well, it turns out, you know, they were licking the very sweet tasting paint on these uh, porch railings. So then, you know, like industry reluctantly agreed, okay, so really high doses of lead are bad for you. And then they only like recognized lead as a problem when you keeled over with a stroke or you died or you had, you know, encephalopathy and you went into a coma. Um, so it took a hundred years really of battles to like demonstrate. You always had to have a body count to show there was harm from a lower level and then a lower level of exposure and then a lower. And now we know that any level of exposure to lead is horrible, but there's so much lead out there. You can find it in, you know, in the shells of, of mollusks, you know, that are dug into the, uh, uh, into the ocean floor. You know, it's everywhere. Now we have permanently poisoned the planet for, you know, at least millions of years. Uh, and then maybe it will kind of go under the sediment or something. But, you know, we do that in chemical after chemical after chemical. We need a whole different approach to regulation. I mean, this is part of what made me enter the political fray was, you know, I, I was part of a group that got a very toxic pesticide off the shelf, um, uh, chlorpyrifos, it's called. It continued to be used then for decades uh, in, on farms and therefore farm workers and farm, farming communities continue to be exposed. Um, but, you know, it's like after we got this one pesticide regulated, I like had this wake up and I thought, oh, that's great. One down, 450 to go. We're not going to get there, not in our lifetimes. We need a regulatory system that's working for us, you know, and this could be applied to every regulatory institution there is, you know, it's also the FAA. And, you know, why is it that Boeing was allowed to produce that monstrosity, you know, that crashed and then crashed again. And then I think had a third crash, you know, it's just outrageous. Our regulatory industries are not, or our regulatory industries, you know, no pun intended there, you know, Freudian slip, <laughs> our regulatory agencies are not defending us. So, you know, these are fixable problems. Um, anyhow, let me, uh, let me get back to your list. We could, we could talk all day here. Um, Lahaina, it's outrageous. You know, here we are sending $17 billion to drop 2,000-pound bombs on refugees instead of, you know, dealing with the people of Lahaina whose, you know, whose homes, livelihoods, communities have been devastated. And where's the relief? You know, the relief is not coming. <clears throat> and what happened to them could happen to all of us. You know, this isn't just like, climate change swept in out of nowhere. It was also, you know, corporatization of certain land use patterns and, and changes in their water supply and stuff like that. You know, this stuff has to be, um, you know, uh, uh, regulated from a public interest uh, point of view, not from what's going to sell your biggest, you know, get your biggest bang for the buck on your real estate. So anyhow, the people of Lahaina need relief. We're going to um, hopefully... I don't know if we're going to be able to visit Lahaina. I would love to get to Lahaina. I'm not sure if we will, but we'll, we'll certainly be working to lift up their fight. Um, you asked me about uh, inflation, you know, so we now know, you know, a lot of inflation, you know, was downstream of blowing up the Nord Stream pipeline, which massively escalated the cost of fuel 
And that then carries over into moving food and moving everything else and growing food and fertilizer and all that. So this was, you know, there are, there's a lot of corporate responsibility here to go around. And there's also the so-called greedflation, you know, that the sense that we're having inflation gives uh, corporations uh, justification to raise their prices further. And, you know, it just um, magnifies on itself. So that's inexcusable. And there's a lot that an executive president could do to just slap that down, you know, going as far even as Richard Nixon, you know, who basically instituted price controls, you know, said, we're going to stop this, you know, we're not going to allow this to happen. You know, if Richard Nixon could do that, you know, there's a lot that that uh, that that could be done. And who do you think was responsible for the Nord Stream pipeline explosion? Well, whether it was, you know, whether it was the U.S. instigating it or whether it was Ukraine and the U.S. gave the thumbs up, you know, the U.S. was definitely in on this. So, you know, why has this not been investigated? You know, I mean, <laughs> the U.N. has had many opportunities to investigate and the U.S. keeps slapping it down. Hmm. Is there something fishy there? You know, the fact that we keep suppressing an investigation that that's kind of, you know, very implicating in and of itself. I think we know all we need to know here, you know, and them congratulating each other that, oh, what a wonderful marketing opportunity has opened up. You know, some official in um, Poland who said congratulations to the United States. You know, there are all kinds of smoking guns here. And it's like laughable that that hasn't been investigated. As I must say, why have we not gotten to the bottom of the origins of the COVID virus? That too is just staggering. Uh, Let's not go into that right now, but it's unbelievable. There are a lot of smoking guns there. And the biggest smoking gun of all is that the U.S. refuses to investigate this. So there you have it. And on immigration, you know, it's crazy. And this is another case in point, how the politics of fear has brought us everything we're afraid of. You know, the lesser evil thing doesn't get you there. It just really takes the the um, the momentum out of the progressive movement entirely. So now you have Joe Biden and the Democrats basically adopting the most horrific practices of of the Republicans and pretending that the wall is going to solve this problem. The wall, wall is not going to solve this problem. What has to be done fundamentally is we have to shut down the spigot. That is. We have to stop driving people out of their homes. People don't get into a boat or wade across a dangerous river unless that is safer than the lives that they are leading right now. People do not want to leave their families and their communities, which you have to do if you are going to migrate. So we have to stop driving people out of their homes through war, by disrupting their economies, by practicing regime change, which we have done, what, like some 70, some time since the Second World War, and those are just the covert regime change operations, not you know, not the wars, you know, where are the uh, migrants coming from, particularly those countries where we have overthrown uh, elected democracies like Guatemala, um, you know, El Salvador, where we have had our, uh, our dirty wars uh, being conducted that we, where we have trained, um, you know, basically the, uh, the war criminals, uh, you know, with the help of the like of uh, Elliot Abrams, you know, who was then recycled with the Democrats and, and Joe Biden, who, you know, sort of renewed his place in, in, in government. You know, this is outrageous how the Democrats are very much a part of, of this uh, crisis. Oh, and, and then also climate change, you know, because climate change is really, uh, it's expected now. The UN predicts there will be a billion climate migrants 
you know, we now measure climate migrants, or I should say we measure migrants in the tens of millions, but we're talking a billion uh, come by the time of 2050, which is another reason why we need to be really deadly serious about climate. We can't do what Barack Obama did, what Joe Biden is still doing, claiming that they are the friend of the environment, they're, but they're basically talking still in all of the above policy. They don't talk about shutting down um, fossil fuels, which is what we have to do. We have to terminate the use of fossil fuels within a 10-year time frame because climate is exploding. And if you think that's not about you, just consider that half the fruits and vegetables for this country come from the uh, California agriculture system irrigated or watered by the Colorado River, which is close to shutting down. The Washington Post ran a headline last year that called it the doomsday scenario that we are on track for. Um, so if you think, you know, and it's kind of become fashionable to deny climate change now among some so-called, you know, progressives, liberals, I guess, you know, who are suddenly skeptical about climate change, mainly because they're, they've allowed the, um, you know, the propaganda to get under their skin. Likewise for nuclear power, we could talk about that one too. Um, but these are extremely dangerous and uh, is very important to, you know, to hear the full debate here. And, and not just listen to one side with the propaganda. And it's, you know, the case is overwhelming. We need to, we need to get with the program here. So that's the first step in immigrant, you know, to dealing with the immigration problem. Let's, and also it's the drug trade. So the president on day one can decriminalize um, many drugs, but including in particular marijuana. And the marijuana is a big workhorse for the drug trade. So simply by beginning to legalize, um, uh, uh, drugs and provide to, to address the whole problem as a public health issue, not as a criminal issue. You pull the rug out from under the drug trade and thereby, you know, the violence that surrounds it, which is also driving people from its homes. So there's a lot we can do now immediately to undercut um, the drivers of immigration. And then instead of spending money on you know, so-called uh, enforcement and barriers and entrapment and private prisons and separating families at the border and all of this horrific stuff, which has been widely embraced by the Democrats now too. Instead, we invest in dealing with those immigrants who are here and who arrive at their border. We need to deal with them efficiently and humanely, get them processed, get them working papers, uh, you know, um, uh, ensure that people who cross the border are um, law-abiding citizens, that they don't have serious, uh, you know, uh, criminal records. Uh, they're not, you know, part of the drug trade. That can be done with adequate uh, resources to do that. We can ensure that migration is safe and efficient and that the burden of accepting these refugees from our predatory policies Accepting those refugees should not be a burden of local communities and states. The federal government needs to take responsibility for that, which they can. Remember, we're spending well over a trillion dollars a year just killing people right now. So imagine how much money we would save if we stopped killing people on a, you know, on an epic scale. We have the money to do this and it can be done. And we should stop allowing the Democrats and Republicans to make us think that immigrants are the problem. Immigrants are really the cultural wealth of our nation. It's not just immigrants, also African-Americans brought here 
you know, against their will and Native Americans. But diversity is the cultural wealth of our country. And this is what makes America great. And let's be proud of it. And, you know, and, and grateful to the immigrants who bring incredible hard work, you know, working ethics, um, law abiding traditions, uh, you know, immigrants are not committing crimes, you know, they're committing crimes at like a fraction of the rate of native born, you know, so they're diluting our population with really good law abiding citizens. So let's not, um, let's not, uh, demagogue people and, um, you know, and, uh, uh, make things even harder for people that we have driven out of their homes. And above all, let's stop driving people out of their homes. This is fixable. Well, that's great. And that would be a great place to end. But I also want to ask you one thing just to debunk some stuff because someone, I mean, I don't want to indulge people who are say stupid things, but someone said something about why should I listen to Jill Stein? She's uh, met with Michael Flynn and handed the election to Trump. I just want to give you a chance, not that you should have to, but this is so just to debunk things, because I know that there are some normies out there who will watch this and say, oh, Jill Stein, she's a Putinist or something. She's responsible for Trump. What were you doing in that photo that they turned into a scandal uh, when you were in Russia? And what do you say to people who, who say that you gave the election to Trump? So what I was doing, I was on a tour of a couple European capitals to talk to world leaders and grassroots groups about our agenda to basically create a global Green New Deal and fix the climate problem, to create a peace offensive in the Middle East. And in Russia, I actually said that Russia was following in the disastrous footsteps of the U.S. by bombing Syria. You know, so I'm challenging all the warmongers here for trying to make peace through war, which, which doesn't happen. You know, so it was um, peace in the Middle East and a, um, a nuclear weapons ban. Now, if only our leaders would follow my good example and do the same thing, that is what we need to do. That's what John Kennedy did with Khrushchev back in the 1960s and averted a World War III that could have broken out way back then. That's what we need to be doing now. We need to have people who have the backbone to actually talk to their adversaries as well as their allies. This is like not something that should be defended. This is like um, not rocket science at all. Michael Flynn was not an appointee of the Trump administration at the time. He had most recently been a part of the Obama administration. And he and I exchanged a few words. I gave him my elevator speech about why I was there. He had absolutely no interest in it. And our conversation ended there. At that dinner table, people who spoke English, you know, spoke to each other. People who spoke Russian spoke to each other. When uh, Vladimir Putin walked in with three strapping muscular guys, I assumed they were his bodyguards. Nobody introduced anybody to anybody. It turned out they were like his chief of staff, his press guy and stuff like that. I even sat next to one of them, but we didn't exchange a single word. They were not interested in, you know, the small peons who happened to be seated at the table. This was a conference and I had had an opportunity to speak at that conference and address press from around the nation about a different kind of America, you know, an America that really wanted peace, that wanted uh, a nuclear weapons ban and uh, a global Green New Deal. It was very important that I was there and, you know, lay groundwork for discussion. Um, I had grown up as part of Physicians for Social Responsibility, where we did citizen to citizen contact across borders. 
That's where some of the nuclear weapons treaties came from, from basically this kind of contact outside of normal diplomatic channels, because sometimes we can initiate things that can't be done um, when your political channels are, are really corrupted. So this is just absolute nonsense. It's the opposite of what you're being told. This is, um, this is uh, the kind of dialogue that should be emulated and that should be prioritized and that our leadership should be conducting right now. And let me just tell you one thing. One nuclear submarine contains the equivalent of 4,000 Hiroshima bombs. One nuclear submarine is enough to trigger basically nuclear winter. It doesn't matter where these bombs go off because nuclear winter happens everywhere. And we all go. We all go. You know, you don't have to go from radiation. You don't have to go from the power of the explosion. We lose the sunlight when that much debris gets kicked up into the atmosphere. And so this is a threat to us all. Climate change is a threat to us all. War is a threat to us all. And we have to start operating on those principles. Genocide is a threat to us all. And the undermining of international law is a threat to us all, especially at, the, at this moment of, of global transition. You know, we have been the dominant monopolar power in the world. We're not going to be, and we no longer are. And in fact, we have forced Russia and China into a, um, you know, into a strong alliance. So we have to become a team player here and we need to, uh, you know, we need to open up the world of international law and diplomacy and human rights. That should be the basis of our foreign policy going forward, not, um, you know, brute force and military domination, which is kind of the old way. So don't be propagandized into supporting that kind of system. You know, really think twice, because so much of what you're going to hear now through mainstream media is propaganda. And in fact, you know, the Democrats have announced that they will be doing their best to smear us, uh, to fear campaign us, and to so-called complicate our, uh, our, our ballot access drives. So you'd be well advised to uh, raise your skepticism threshold and stop being, um, you know, dragged around by the nose by the political system that has thrown all of us under the bus and uh, which is a very serious threat to our future. We need to stand up and declare independence now and, and reclaim our right to a just, secure, peaceful uh, future uh, in our democracy. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Jill Stein. Great talking with you, Katie. And you're going on a tour right now, right? You're kicking off a multi-state trip? Yes, that's right. We're going to be in 15 states from California to West Virginia. Wisconsin will be in Michigan at Dearborn with the Muslim community. We are going to be going far and wide. So I'd say go to our website, jillstein2024.com and sign up just for the newsletter, at least to know about what's going on. If you can throw something into the pot and make sure that we have a pro-worker, anti-war, anti-genocide, climate emergency campaign on the ballot across the country to really point the direction forward. And all bets are off about what's going to happen in this race. So don't let them talk you out of your power. Let's use it for all it's worth. Great. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Take care. You too. Bye. All righty. That was great. Thank you so much, Dr. Jill Stein. Um, Brad, I need to ask your advice. Should we, um, we're, that was a longer interview. It was great, but it was longer. So do we do, uh, the, I guess we can play some of, uh, here, can you come on the screen? Hey. All right, Brad. Hey, what should we do? Should we 
play the other interview? Should we do the Israel-Palestine news stuff we were going to do? Um, um, I guess because we announced that it was going to be Rashid Khalidi, we, we have to show some of that, right? Yeah, and um, I think it would probably be good to at least do a quick update. Okay, yeah, a, so we'll do everything then. We'll just do it quickly. Okay. Uh, do you want to do the uh, second interview first? No, let's do the update. Okay. What do you cool. think? Yeah, sounds good. Okay, so I just wanted to, um, do you want to stay on screen with me while I do it? Sure. Okay. Will you be able to show the clips and stuff? Yeah. Yeah. Okay, great. All righty. So. And, and just thank you, Dr. Stein, Jill, uh, for making the time. Thank you yeah, very much. Yeah, that was much. great. That was a great interview. Yeah. Um, so I just wanted to, uh, we have another guest on. I interviewed Dr. Rashid Khalidi on Monday. And so I'm going to be playing that. But since we talked mostly about history and not what was happening lately, I wanted to make sure that we addressed what has been happening in Palestine. And so most people probably know this, but just some updates. So while America was watching the Super Bowl, basically Israel was bombing Rafah, where over one million Palestinians have sought refuge. And so far, at least 100 people were killed. At least 40 of them were children. And Israel presented this strike as a quote-unquote diversion to free two hostages. And we'll get into that later. Brad has some theories about that. But they called it a diversion. And an Axios reporter, Barack Ravid, thought it was appropriate to tweet that out as if that's kind of an acceptable thing to do, to create a diversion that kills 100 people in order to free two hostages who could have been freed in negotiations and they have killed hostages that they didn't need to kill by shooting them. We know that they shot three of them. I believe it was earlier within a week. I believe Netanyahu had rejected the ceasefire agreement, which part of that agreement was releasing all of these hostages. And so that just another way where that could have been accomplished without killing anyone. Right. Without killing anyone. And of course, if they cared, I, I know I sound like a broken record, but if they cared, like we know they hate Palestinians. We know that they think they are subhuman. But if they did that one thing that they claim to do, which is that they really care about Jewish life and they create a haven for Jews, they'd of course be doing everything they could to free these hostages. But they don't. They would much rather kill Palestinians and save the lives of Jews. And I, I would argue that what they're doing, I mean, I can't think of anything that would radicalize people, you know, Palestinians, Muslims, let alone everyone else in the world to loathe uh, the concept of Israel. Like if, if your goal is to make a safe space, they're doing the worst PR possible for themselves. Yeah. And of course, for themselves, then of course, for Jews, which is why I'm so angry when they yeah. present themselves as acting in the name of Jews. Right. I put someone in timeout the other day. No, today, because they wrote like other presidents were Jewish by proxy. I think they meant Zionist, but I'm trying to explain to people. I think we've done a good job of delinking those things, but those things are not the same. The host of the show is Jewish. I would caution anyone, if you're listening to someone criticizing Israel, if you ever notice them slipping all of a sudden between the word Israel gets replaced with Jew or yeah. Jewish, that is a red flag. Right. Stop listening. Now, if you're in the Middle East, I think that like I would pull someone, if they said that, I would respectfully correct them. I think in America, yeah, right. it's pretty inexcusable. I think if right. you're in the Middle East where it's like you, all you know are the Jews of Israel, that's understandable. Yeah, like we spoke about that with Rania Kalik, actually. But remember, there are more Christian Zionists than Jewish Zionists in America, and there's a huge Christian Zionist lobby. And a lot of the 
resistance right now to what Biden's doing is coming from within the United States, at least is coming from Jewish Americans. Yeah. So, okay. So here's what you need to know. Biden has spoken over the phone with Netanyahu the day of the bombings on Sunday and apparently told him, quote, a military operation in Rafa should not proceed without a credible and executable plan for ensuring the safety of and support for the more than 1 million people sheltering there. Okay, end quote. But we don't need to worry about Israel providing support for Palestinians because they're so good at that. In fact, we even have a picture of this. This is a picture of their aid, and it was tweeted out by the country of Israel tweeted this image out. So it shows, uh, it says, it's a tweet by the government of Israel, literally Israel, at Israel on Twitter. 11,000 trucks, 140,000 tons of food, 1,000 water trucks, 17,000 tons of medical supplies, 23,000 tons of tents and shelter equipment. Israel will continue to facilitate the transfer of life-saving humanitarian aid to Gaza. Our war is with Hamas, not with the people of Gaza, right? And then they write hashtag free Gaza from Hamas. And it says, and approximately 23 tons of tents and shelter equipment. And so that image below is apparently the shelter equipment. But there's only one problem, which is that according to someone on Twitter who noticed this, Okay, so here's what that actual image is. Okay. Oh, an eye stock image. It's an eye stock image, right? And what it actually presents is tents in Moldova for Ukrainian refugees. Land arranged on the territory of Moldova. Yes. And shout out to Twitter user Cheyenne Sardarizada, who you can follow at Cheyenne86 on Twitter. So that's just in case you ever thought that you had to be skeptical of what Israel's saying, because it is true. They do lie a lot. And Israel just, that's their, their thing. They lie. In fact, Netanyahu was on the Sunday morning news shows saying that the, ready for this, that the civilian to terrorist kill ratio was one to one. He said this on the Sunday morning news shows. And they just move on from that? Jonathan Carl was kind of like, mm, Really? But he should have had the numbers on hand. He should have been like, well, certainly. But I think he said some BS Netanyahu about like pretending it was like 20,000 people had been killed, like 20,000 Hamas. But yeah, I mean, it's sorry, but 30,000 Hamas people have not been killed. 30,000 civilians more have been killed. And there's still people under the rubble as we speak who have not been recovered. And there's still people who could have been recovered, not just recovered like physically, but they could have been saved if they had had the fuel needed to operate the machinery to get them out. It's just wild that there is, they were still that blanket acceptance, more or less, even after they were literally ruled as having a plausible case of genocide by the International Criminal Court. Exactly, which was the most aggressive ruling they could do. Yeah. They couldn't rule it was genocide. They had they, The only options was plausible or implausible. Like that ruling meant the genocide case will happen. Exactly, will proceed, yes. right, yeah. 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 So, but let's go back to lying and liars. So let's take a look at this clip we have from John Kirby, who's the coordinator for strategic communications at the National Security Council. He was being asked by a reporter if the U.S. would actually do anything if Israel did precisely what Biden claims he told them not to do. Remember, he said that they shouldn't do anything in Rafa if they don't have a credible and executable plan for ensuring the safety of and support for the more than 1 million people sheltering there. So let's see what John Kirby's response to this following question is. 
Rafa, does the has the president ever threatened to strip military assistance from Israel if they move ahead with a Rafa operation that does not take into consequence uh, what happens with civilians? We're going to continue to support Israel. They have a right to defend themselves against Hamas, and we're going to continue to make sure they have the tools and the capabilities to do that. Okay, so sounds like they're going to do absolutely nothing if they do the thing that Biden claims he's telling them not to do. So Kirby doesn't even play lip service to. We're encouraging them to protect civilians. No, he's absolutely saying, he's given the opportunity to say, will anything happen because of this? Will anything happen if Israel does the thing that the United States is telling them not to? And that's what he's been saying forever now. And like I mentioned to you earlier, Katie, and maybe this has happened and I just didn't see it or hear it, but I've never once heard someone reply to him like, but that's not what's happening. Like, I understand what you're saying. They have the right to defend themselves. Right. That's not self-defense. Yeah. Killing children is not actually self-defense. It makes me feel like I'm losing my mind. Yeah. But luckily, we do have some people who try to speak truth to power, push back on the lies, including Saeed Arakat, the Palestinian-American journalist who's been on the show. He was a great guest. He's such a great, brave journalist. And here he is talking to another liar, State Department spokesperson Matt Miller. Let's hear this exchange. To Matt's point, the president of the United States of America went out and told the entire world, Israel's conduct is over the top. By the way, he called it over the top. He called Israel's conduct over the top. He also said Hamas was over the top. The guy is so decrepit and lazy and limited in his faculties, he can probably only memorize one phrase a day. So he decided to go with over the top. War war crimes are over the top. Yeah, exactly. Right, right. It's over the top. So if it's over the top, what are you willing to do to make it go under the top. We are going to engage with them to, to, uh, on specific, specific areas where we expect to see improvement. What kind of improvement? I mean, we saw yesterday that we they, bombed, so, they bombed, <laughs> they killed 120 people, maybe a lot more. We don't know how many injured and so on, or how many among the injured will die, will end up dying and all these things. And you're saying that this is, you know, you, just what you said. You said that we have seen them bomb up, uh, you know, all throughout. Does that make it okay? Does that make it okay when everybody, including the Secretary of State, including the President of the United States of America, including many leaders in this country, have said, you know, you should not attack Rafah, period, or you can attack it by air? Is that it? We have, made, that we have always said that they can attack legitimate military targets, um, uh, and we want to see them take every step that they can to minimize civilian casualties. As I just said, we have seen civilian casualties come down, right. but as you and I have, in, have right. Right. as you and I have discussed many times uh, in this room, uh, Saeed, they face a very difficult situation in that Hamas continues to hide itself right. among the civilian population. If, if this was a, a war being fought on a battle. By the way, Israel just used a Palestinian human shield. They always say that it's Hamas hiding a civilian population. They're in Gaza. Gaza is densely populated. That's where they live. And they can't get out thanks to Israel. It's not like they're choosing to be in this densely populated area. It's not like they have the option of, of launching things from some, I don't know, bucolic scene. Using their second passport. Yeah, exactly. Or just have it being allowed to travel to other parts of Palestine. God forbid. Also, just taking him at his word, if civilian casualties are going down, probably because you killed them all. Yeah, right. You run out of them. Yeah. 1% of Gaza has been killed. Is it 1% of children or 1% of Gazans? I think 1% of Gazans, but I may be mistaken. It's just unspeakable. But 
this is a talking point they love using that it's it's not Israel's in a hard, such a hard place because you know Gaza and Hamas doesn't fight fair because they use human shields. Meanwhile, Israel yesterday used a human shield to notify to tell people in a hospital to evacuate, and then when the person came out, shot that person. And they use human shields all the time. There are articles about it. There are videos of it. I mean, they seem to be doing that. I could be imagining it, but I feel like in the last couple of days, there's been at least once a day, they have, it's been like a mother and a child, or it's been, you know, a boy that they, you know, shoot on the street for no reason and then shoot the rescuers that come in to get them. Or with that little girl hand, and then they shot the ambulances trying to rescue her. I mean, just like stuff you would see in, in, you would hear about if you were reading about the Holocaust, like the kind of targeting the inhumanity, these things that you would be raised in it, like an anti-Holocaust curriculum would include stories about children like this being killed. This was a a war being fought on a battlefield where Hamas would come out and fight. It would be a much different scenario. Unfortunately, it is not. So Israel faces a very difficult situation. Doesn't lessen their need to do more. um, And that's why we continue to engage with them on this question. But the fact is that you do have a magic wand. You have a huge, big magic wand. And that magic wand... I'm glad you think it's a magic wand. It is a magic wand. I don't think people share that assessment. But it's real. It's substantive. But it is a wand. It's a wand. I mean, we're talking about billions of dollars that are approved to make this war keep on going. While, in fact, we have seen reports from the United Nations that telling you, you are a shake away, Matt, from starvation in Gaza. Nothing is going in into Rafah. No aid. None of this is, is going on. I mean, there are so, so many things that are going on at the same time that the United States can, in fact, use its magic. Yeah, let's see this part two of this clip. So, Saeed, we have used uh, a number of levers at our disposal, and that is why humanitarian assistance is going into Rafah. In fact, your contention is not true. There were uh, nearly 200 trucks that, I'm sorry, that, that are going into Gaza. There are nearly 200 trucks of humanitarian assistance that went into Gaza yesterday. Let me just interject, um, and please, I could be mistaken, but my understanding is prior to this, uh, what is currently going on, prior to this, it required at least 500 trucks a month, a day going into Gaza just to sustain the population at a bare minimum starvation level. You mean just under the siege before October 7th? Correct. Yes. Would be 500 trucks a day just then. So him saying 200 trucks now, that's that's not even what it was prior to that. Yeah, you're just saying it's way insufficient. If we want to go back to the beginning, it is because of the intervention of the United States that humanitarian assistance is going in. We continue to call for more. When the secretary was there last week, he raised with the, directly with the prime minister that we want to see Erez crossing open so that we can continue to do more. And it is that repeated, sustained engagement that we have shown over time has delivered results, and it's why we'll continue to stay engaged. Do you expect, lastly, do you expect that uh, Director Burns is meeting tomorrow and uh, or a scheduled meeting tomorrow uh, in Cairo will produce anything. What is what is your the feeling in this building on the ongoing discussions? So first of all, I'm going to look around and remind everyone that I'm the spokesperson for the State yes, Department, absolutely. not not I any other agency. You know, so I'm not going to I'm not going to speak to uh, 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 the travel of well, you're the highest members government of, spokesman. Members of other hold on members of other agencies in the government. I will say generally as it relates to um, engagement over uh, engagement over. Um, uh, the release of hostages. 
<clears throat> you heard the secretary speak to this and say that we think progress can be made. Um, there were a number of, of really untenable items in the proposal that came back from Hamas, um, but we do believe that a deal is possible and we are going to continue to pursue it um, uh, uh, from this building as well as from others because we think the benefits um, of a pause and a deal for hostages uh, are tremendous. Um, not just obviously for the hostages who would be released, but also for uh, the humanitarian effort in Gaza and for our ability to um, uh, begin to pursue uh, a real and lasting uh, sustainable resolution of this conflict. I actually have one more clip that I want to show. I can do a screen share of it. And regarding the, uh, what did you say, untenable points of, of the ceasefire um, agreement, to my mind, the only thing in there, because it was basically a end to the violence across the board, hostages are released, and acknowledging the rights, the basic rights of Palestinians, it seems to me the only untenable thing would be the end of the violence, because as Dr. Stein was saying earlier, I mean, that would go against the military-industrial complex and the amount of obscene money that people are making on various sides during this. To me, that would be what they would consider untenable. Yeah, and they make it seem like it's something like they're being these political realists when these are all policy decisions. It's inexcusable. Okay, here's another clip with Miller. And besides Saeed Arakat, another uniquely honest and brave journalist who sometimes enters these spaces is Matt Lee. So this is going to be Matt Miller and Matt Lee. And you're still ruling out cutting of any aid. I am not ruling anything out. I'm saying we have not made the assessment that is a decision or that is that is a step that would be uh, more impactful than the steps that we have already taken. And at the same time, you have to look at the fact that um, such a step, uh, how such a step would be received by Israel's opponents, uh, both inside Gaza and outside of uh, the state of Israel. So that, well, what levers have you used? Uh, so we have used diplomatic effort, uh, levers. The secretary that has... Means that, that, that means the secretary and the president and you and Kirby and whoever else standing we, up and saying, wagging your finger and saying that that's not really leverage. Uh, we have engaged with them on a um, uh, at a multitude of levels at this uh, administration. And, and as I the, kind of you look at the list that we just went through with Humera, we have seen them take steps at our urging that have had real, yeah, have had real tangible but impact, what, what but, levers, but they have not been enough. Uh, but what levers have you actually... Uh, I, I think the, that when the United States of America uh, stands up and says something publicly, it matters. But you haven't said and, no, and we, but that to there my point, any consequences to, or, my, uh, to my point, we in have terms seen... Of money, or military assistance, we right? Ha- but but we have seen because of the uh, policies we have pursued, we have seen improvements along these specific areas. Um, oh, okay, we have fine. seen tangible improvements. Again, okay, but not I'm the just asking that, you what, what leverage I, have but you also, used? I, 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 what there, leverage have you brought I, to bear? I just went through. It. What think, have you gone? I think the what, words of the president the, of the United States, the words of the Secretary of State, matter. And we have seen hold on, we over seen, the top, and we that's have seen leverage? and we have seen the government of Israel respond to it. Not always in the way that we want, not always to the degree that we want or to the level that we want, but the, the our interventions we believe have had an impact, and we will continue to pursue them because we okay. Okay, so basically, he's saying that they need to kill less people, and also that. 
the word of Biden matters. He literally, on Monday, person to person, on the phone, told Netanyahu, don't do this thing. And then basically, Israel was like, eh, go fuck yourself. And they went and did it. Israel just said, okay, sure, we're going to do it. And then, the, but the response of America is to do literally nothing. And also to tell the media, we're not going to do anything about it. No, we did something. We sent them an extra, what, $19 billion? Right, true. Right, right, right. Well, we won't do anything punitive, though. Right, right, right. So he's both saying that, he's literally saying that the leverage is Biden telling them not to do things that they then do. Biden's words are so powerful. They're so powerful that they are ignored. I mean, it's an absolute joke. It's unbelievable. And also, they try to do both things. They try to pretend that Biden's hands are tied. He's trying as best as he can. And then they try to also claim credit for things that happen. So which one is it? Much like in the same way that, what was it, the State Department recently ruled that they couldn't try him for certain things because... Because he was too impaired. Yet, at the same time, they say, no, he's extremely cognizant and wicked. and. You shouldn't bring that up. Yeah, unbelievable. Well, we have, I think, one more clip. And this is with someone who Brad is a big fan of. (laughs) This guy is Elon Levy. He's an Israeli government spokesperson. So let's listen to what he had to say, and then we'll look at some responses. Proceeding with the destruction of Hamas's military machine, and that we urge civilians to get out of the way because we don't want them to be hurt. Hamas has two strategies Well, there are areas north of Rafah where we have already cleared the areas of Hamas, and we want to see civilians going to areas where Hamas is not operating. So are you now saying that everywhere north of Rafah is now safe and that there will not be Israeli bombardment if people move into those areas? Unfortunately, until Gaza is no longer governed by an internationally prescribed terrorist organization that is deliberately trying to hide behind civilians, Gaza will not be safe. So there is no... So, yeah, okay. There's literally nowhere for for civilians are going to get killed no matter what. Them's the breaks because we have no choice but to bomb. Trying to make the regions. I mean, that's what David Cameron said today. There is literally nowhere for them to go. And he is right in saying that, isn't he? No, we designated, for example, the Al-Mawasi area, just to give one example, as an area in the Gaza Strip where Hamas has not already embedded itself with that vast tunnel network inside the Gaza Strip to hide behind. You just contradicted yourself. You said that there's nowhere safe because you haven't gotten rid of Hamas yet. And now you're saying that you've given them safety zones. And of course, we know that in the past, they will tell the Palestinians, the Gazans, go here because it's safe. Then they go here and then they get bombed. I'm civilians. You say they should get out of the way, but you have also admitted in this interview, there is nowhere safe for them to go because there is nowhere where you can say there will not be airstrikes. So, And the international community must insist that civilians can be vacated away from areas where? where Hamas is trying to use them as human shields. Are you to saying areas they should go where to we Egypt? have already destroyed? No, no, no. To then areas what do you in the mean Gaza by the international Strip community? We... Should, should, should help you with this. Look, since Israel could have gone in all guns are blazing on October 8th, we didn't because we knew the results would be catastrophic. We gave three weeks warnings for civilians to be able to evacuate northern Gaza and secured humanitarian corridors for them to get out because we wanted a fair fight against Hamas without civilians in the way. We think it's horrific that UN agencies have tried to characterize Israel's actions in pursuance of its obligations under international law to protect civilians as forced displacement. Okay, so let's see what Brianna Joy Gray's response to that was. 
So Elon says Israel gave Gazans a three-week warning to evacuate after 10-7 instead of going in guns blazing. In fact, within the first six days, Israel dropped more bombs on Gaza than America did on Afghanistan in a year. And then she highlights an article that says Israel said it dropped about 6,000 bombs on the Gaza Strip within the first six days of war. That's staggering numbers close to the 7,423 bombs U.S. dropped on Afghanistan in 2019. Israel has launched multiple airstrikes on the densely populated Gaza Strip since October 7th. So that's her response to him. Well, Brad, thank you so much for this. Thank you for letting me. uh, This is just venting. Yeah. And I just hope and pray that we see some good things sooner than later. Yeah. And everyone keep pushing and protesting and demanding a stop to this genocide. We have one more piece of this show. We're going to play this interview with Rashid Khalidi. Let me just let you know about who Rashid Khalidi is, because he's a great guest. And as I said before, to hear the full interview with Rashid Khalidi, you can do that at patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show. Again, that's patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show. But here I'm going to play part of an interview I did with the brilliant Palestinian-American historian Rashid Khalidi, the Edward Said Professor of Modern Arab Studies at Columbia University. Dr. Khalidi is the author of several books, including The Hundred Years' War on Palestine, A History of Settler Colonialism and Resistance. He is editor of the Journal of Palestine Studies and was president of the Middle East Studies Association and an advisor to the Palestinian delegation to the Madrid and Washington Arab-Israeli peace negotiations from October 1991 until June 1993. And in fact... He talks to me about what it was like being an advisor to these negotiations, as well as his thoughts on 2024 and much more at patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show. So without any further ado, here is Dr. Rashid Khalidi. Thank you so much for joining the show. Well, thank you for having me. Of course. Um, I wanted to ask you about how, as a historian, obviously, how you see history informing the present moment, right? So we just had America watching the Super Bowl while Israel bombs Rafah. Um, You are someone who obviously explains the colonial nature of the founding of Israel, something which, as you point out, you don't have to be historian to acknowledge. You can just listen to the actual people like Jabotinsky or look at the, you know, the colonial trust or various institutions that have colonial in its name, the Jewish colonization association. So it's colonial. It was a colonial uh, settler colonial project. Who got what out of that? And how does that shape the present moment? I think all you have to do is look at what's happening in the West bank or occupied Arab East Jerusalem, where under cover of the war, a whole bunch of thousands of new uh, residential units are going to be established, Israeli-only, Jewish-only, on land that's either being confiscated or has questionable status. Um, That's a colonial settler project that's ongoing in the West Bank and in East Jerusalem. Indeed, uh, there are responsible ministers in the Israeli government who are talking about recommencing the settlement of the Gaza Strip on Arab land again. Um, So I don't think you even have to look back at the Jewish colonization agency, which was wound up in 1958, or the self-described settler colonial nature of the early Zionist project. 
to see that, you know, land acquisition and changing the demography, demography balance in favor of a Jewish majority from what was originally up until 1948 an Arab majority, which are the landmarks of a settler colonial, you know, regime, have always been there. They are there now, and they have always been there. And that was understood um, before, certainly before World War II by all concerned. Um, so it's, it's, it's the nature, it's the nature of, uh, of, of that whole project is, is and has always been. Um, as Jabotinsky, you mentioned Jabotinsky. Jabotinsky said, you know, what we're trying to do is transform Palestine into the land of Israel. And that means land and that means people. And, and that, that, was always, that was always what it was about. What were the advantages for the British and then for the United States as they kind of enabled this colonialism? Right. Um, well, the British had a whole set of strategic objectives. Uh, Palestine lies to the east of Egypt. Egypt had the Suez Canal. It was vital to the empire. You know, it was the connection to the East Asian Empire, to its Indian Empire, to its East African Empire. So Egypt was vital. And early in the 20th century, the British decided they had to control Palestine because it protected the eastern flank of Egypt. That's a decision that they took in 1905-1906. And that had nothing to do with Zionism. That's the the, the primary motive for Britain's desire to control Palestine. Uh, They then began to think about the importance of controlling the shortest land route between the Mediterranean and the, the, uh, the Gulf. And Palestine is the Mediterranean terminus of that land route. And later on, the British built a whole series of air bases and then roads and then a pipeline along that land route. Um, so Palestine was important strategically to the empire, and that's why they wanted it. Um, they came upon several additional reasons for supporting Zionism. One of them was in the words of a British colonial official, Sir Ronald Storrs, to create a little Jewish Ulster in a sea of hostile Arabs. And if you think of the British in Ireland, and you think of, you know, from Cromwell onwards and the replacement and the, and the plantation, what they call the plantation uh, of loyal British subjects in hostile Catholic Ireland. Um, that's what, that's what in, in, in at least Storrs' mind, Britain was up to. And I, I, I can't imagine that that wasn't in the minds of people like Lord Balfour, Winston Churchill, and, uh, and Lloyd George, all of whom were engaged in fighting the Irish at the very same time that they were issuing the Balfour Declaration and, and, and producing the, the mandate for Palestine. So it's essentially strategic, in my view, strategic interests. There are others. Uh, there's uh, what you'd call today Christian Zionism, a sort of evangelical connection to the idea that the return, that it, it's a Christian obligation that the Jews be returned to their ancestral homeland for reasons that have nothing to do with the Jews. It has to do with the coming of the Messiah and so on and so forth. In fact, a lot um, but of people have to die or convert. Yeah, yeah, you all would disappear. We all would disappear. Um, uh, and only those who are saved, whatever. Those ideas are developing in the early 19th century. Lord Shaftesbury and a bunch of other very intellectual people and the evangelical elements in the, in the, in the uh, Anglican church were really into that. And it's, pers- it's persistent. We have it today in American politics and the American evangelical uh, fealty to Israel for these these eschatological crazy reasons. I mean, I would see them as crazy, but anyway. Um, so that's another motivation. Uh, yet another motivation is, I would argue, anti-Semitism. In other words, the same individual who issued the Balfour Declaration in his capacity as foreign secretary in 1917 is the prime minister who's responsible for the Alien Exclusion Acts, which kept, which kept persecuted Jews fleeing the pogroms of the Russian Empire from entering Britain. 
1905-1906. It's passed in 1905, becomes law in 1906. And that's the same guy, <laughs> Balfour. He's prime minister in 1905 and 1906. He, he's only he's foreign secretary uh, by 1917. So there are, uh, there's a mix of motivations. Uh, some people, you know, overemphasize, in my view, the Christian Zionism or anti-Semitism or other other wartime objectives. You know, if we do this, all the Jews in the world will support the Allied war effort. I don't think those were important. They were there. There were certainly motivations. The major major reason for Britain doing what it does is always strategic and, and in the interest of the empire. And that's why they wanted Palestine. And for them, Zionism was a convenient way to do that. And for the United States? Well, with the United States, uh, it starts off, I would argue, with evangelical Christian Zionism. Uh, that's what drives, I think, Woodrow Wilson. Also a colonial worldview. Uh, he was an old-fashioned white supremacist, Southern racist. He looked down on the inferior peoples of the globe, um, as did the British uh, of that era, most of them. Um, certainly the British ruling class, Balfour, uh, Churchill. Churchill and, 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 and Balfour are notorious for some of the kinds of statements they made. And we know about Woodrow Wilson uh, today. Um, so that, that was what it was initially. There was no particular strategic interest involved. It's only much later when the United States becomes a Middle Eastern power after World War II that the United States begins to think of Israel after it's established, or the establishment of Israel in 1947-48, as a strategic interest. That's much later, though. But American support is not that important. Wilson is supportive at the peace conference in 1919 on Zionism. But, you know, the most important thing is the British position. Right. And then, of course, the American support becomes central. Absolutely. I mean, without American support, you would not have had a partition resolution. The Soviets are also involved. But the Americans brought many more votes to that General Assembly majority than did the Soviets. The Soviets brought four or five votes. The Americans brought dozens. And so at that point, what is America hoping to get out of its support of Israel? Well, I would argue you have a couple of the same kind of motivations that you find at the time of the Balfour Declaration in, in Britain. Uh, Philo-Semitism and support for Zionism out of Christian you know, a sort of sense of a Christian obligation to return the Jewish people to their ancestral homeland. Um, anti-Semitism that kept American immigration law anti-Semitic and anti-Arab and anti-Catholic and so on from the 1920s right up until the 1960s. Uh, in other words, we don't want them here. Uh, when populations in Europe that were suffering persecution could still, Jewish populations in Europe that were suffering persecution and that could still have been saved, um, were trying to find a place of refuge. They couldn't come to the United States or Britain for that matter because of racist, anti-Semitic, British and American immigration laws. So there was a sense of guilt for what happened during the Holocaust. The United States could might not have been able to prevent it, but before World War II, the United States could certainly have served many, saved many, many, many people and did not. Um, Roosevelt couldn't, wouldn't, Truman couldn't, wouldn't change American immigration law. Um, and then I think you have, uh, uh, finally, a sense of guilt about the Holocaust generally and a sense that the Jewish people deserve something from Christian Europe and from the United States, which had failed to do more to prevent it. That this was done at the expense of the Arabs was a tertiary consideration, if it was a consideration at all. Right. Going back to the history, you, of course, have a very fascinating connection to this story. Can you talk about your great, great, great uncle, Yusuf Diyal Khalidi? Sure. Yusuf Zia was a very unusual character for his time. 
He had a traditional Muslim religious education. His father was a senior official in the in the Sharia court in Jerusalem, and his grandfather had held that position. So he came from a long line of judges and, and religious officials that had a classical Islamic training. And he went and got a Western education in Malta and then in Istanbul and in other places, and finally in Austria, in Vienna, uh, where he studied at the, at the uh, Royal Imperial University. Uh, and he served in a variety of positions, diplomatic and governmental in the Ottoman government. But then he was elected to the first Ottoman parliament in uh, 1877 as a deputy for Jerusalem. So he had served as a deputy for Jerusalem in the Ottoman parliament. And he later on became mayor of Jerusalem uh, in the 18, uh, I believe in the 1880s, late 1870s, 1880s. Um, and, and he was very well acquainted. He, and then he went and, different times when he fell into disfavor with the Ottoman regime. He went to Austria, uh, Austro-Hungary, Habsburg Empire, and taught at the, at the university where he'd studied, the Imperial Royal University, Royal Imperial University. Uh, and um, so he knew a great deal about European anti-Semitism. He'd studied Judaism. Uh, we, we have his books in the family library, so we know what he read. And we, we have his correspondence. We know from his writings to European Orientalists and to others, uh, a lot about his mindset and what he knew. And he knew about Zionism. Um, we have copies of Austrian papers that he was receiving. Um, so he writes to Theodor Herzl in 1899, two years after the first Zionist Congress takes place in Basel, in Switzerland. Uh, and he says to him, first of all, that you know we and Muslims and Jews are cousins. We're both children of Abraham. Um, and we very much, and we understand the connection between Judaism and the Jewish people and Palestine. Uh, and he said, uh, we understand that I understand uh, the degree to which you're being, your people are being persecuted in Europe. He'd lived in, in a capital in Vienna, whose mayor, a guy called Karl Leuger, was a fanatical anti-Semite. There's, by the way, still a statue of this character around the Ringstrasse in Vienna. He was one of uh, Hitler's heroes, right? I believe he was. Yeah, Neuger is a horrific figure. Yeah. Still, there's still a statue of him in uh, in Vienna. Uh, See, German, Ger I know they're Austrian, but Germans and Austrians focus on that, clean that up instead of trying to make Palestinians pay for your crimes. Just a suggestion. <laughs> exactly. yeah. yeah, just a suggestion. I mean, take the statue down or hang a, hang something around his neck. Yeah. And a dedicated anti-Semite. That's right. Funny. Anyway, so he knew about anti-Semitism, and, and he says this in his letter to Herzl. And he says, I understand that you're, you know, he'd probably read accounts of the Zionist Congress in German, uh, uncensored. He may have read other writings, probably had read other writings of, of, of Herzl's. We don't know exactly what he, but he knew a lot about it. It seems like he knew a lot about Zionism. And he said, the idea of Zionism in principle is fine. You know, you're a people, you want to see yourself as a modern nationalist. Uh, no problem in principle. He says, the problem is here. If you do it here, there's a people who's already here. You're going to have problems in terms of what dual loyalties for Jews all over the Ottoman Empire. You can have problems with the Ottoman Empire, but you can have problems with us, with the, the people, the, the Paka nation that won't be superseded. And he ends that part of the letter by saying, for the sake of God, leave Palestine alone. So that's, that's Yusuf Zia al-Khadi. He's, he's an interesting figure. One of the earliest Palestinians to foresee the problem that was to come. Did immigration laws change after the Holocaust in the United States and Europe? No, not in the United States until I think Lyndon Johnson passed a much more liberal immigration law in, I think, 1964. So you'd think that that would also be a way that people could have dealt with some of the guilt. You would think. 
but better to shove it off somewhere else. I mean, I think that the same kind of philo-Semitism slash anti-Semitism that you had in Britain with Balfour himself um, may have operated in the case of the United States. I'm not an American historian. I've studied Britain extensively. My, my, first, my, my first book was about British policy, and you had to learn about that the mindset of that aristocracy that, that ran Britain in those days. So I think most things were there definitely with the British. I would guess they were there with American elites. I mean, we know that anti-Semitism was deep-seated in this country. We know that the Ku Klux Klan hanged Jews and Arabs along with the mainly black people. Um, we know um, that um, American universities were discriminatory and had a tiny quota for Jews, my university, Harvard, all of them, uh, certainly all of the, all of the Ivy League schools. Um, so that, 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 that's there for sure as a motivation for keeping, uh, uh, there's also Protestant bias, keeping Catholics out. I mean, this was meant, the, the, the immigration laws of the early 20s were not just meant to keep Jews or Arabs out or Chinese or Asians. They were meant to keep Southern European Catholics out um, and, and only allow Nordic Protestants, white blonde Nordic Protestants into the United States. That, that, was, that was the motivation behind the law, the laws of the immigration laws of the, of the mid-1920s. And can you talk about, speaking of the kind of marriage between anti-Semitism and philo-Semitism, can you talk about the relationship or the occasional collaboration between the Nazis and the Zionists? Yeah, um, well, the, it, was a, it, was a, it was a transactional arrangement. Um, I mean, in the case of a very limited number of extreme extremists um, who were sort of neo-fascist people in the Stern gang, and to some extent the Irba, um, and who were attracted by, by fascist ideas. It was transactional in the main in that there was a desire to increase the Jewish population of, of Palestine during the mandate. And there was a German desire to get rid of Jews. Remember, the, the, the actual Holocaust, the actual murder of all these people is only planned and executed during World War II. We're talking about the 30s, before the war starts. When, as far as the Germans are con con concerned, getting rid of their Jewish problem means getting the Jews out of Germany. And anybody who would have taken them, they would have gladly sent them there. Um, and the Jewish agency, via something called the Transfer Agreement, um, arranged for uh, German Jews to not just be allowed to leave and come to Palestine, but to take some of their assets with them. So you, you've got, on the one hand, from the Nazi perspective, Jews out of Germany, and from the perspective of the Jewish agency, uh, which is the mainstream, you know, Ben-Gurion-led, Chaim Weizmann-led uh, body that the British had created and recognized as the sort of quasi-state uh, 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 of the Zionist movement in Palestine. From the point of view of the Jewish agency, um, you were getting not just highly qualified, highly educated, talented, skilled immigrants, you were getting capital. So the capital inflows in the 1930s are amazing to, to Palestine, uh, partly as a result. And the population shift is dramatic. The, the, the Jewish population as a proportion of the whole is 17 or 18% in 1929, 30, 31, 32. And then starting with the rise of Hitler, it just shoots up. In 1935, you have 60,000 Jewish immigrants, actually more than 60,000. The official figure is 60, it's probably 62, 3, 4, 5. That's as much as the entire Jewish population of Palestine in 1917. And it, so the proportion, the, the, the Jewish proportion of the total population rises from 17 or 18% to 31% by the time World War II breaks out, by, time, by 1939. And this is a dramatic shift. Ben Gurion writes in his diaries, at this rate, you know, we'll have a Jewish majority and we'll have a Jewish state. We don't have to do anything. We don't have to lift a finger. 
So, I mean, this is really very, very important for understanding Palestinian history, not just understanding the history of the issue within, of, of Zionism and Israel. Right. What is your relationship like with Palestine today in terms of visiting or friends and family and colleagues there? What is your sense of what people are experiencing there right now? I mean, I haven't been there since, what, March of last year. I haven't been there for 10 months. Um, I have family there. I have, ton- I have lots of friends there. Um, I work with people, uh, mainly based in Ramallah uh, and in Jerusalem. Um, and in Haifa, actually, also. I gave a talk up in Haifa in, in March, I think, last March. What's my sense of the situation there? Or yeah. your sense of how people are experiencing it? What, I mean, what are they reporting to you to the extent that you can be in contact? I mean, I'm assuming in Gaza, if you have contacts there, it's hard to be in touch with them. But it's what very hard to be in touch reporting? with them. My, my, my niece, who lives in Ramallah, is married to a, someone from Gaza, all of whose family are there, and who moved around five or six times. Um, it's very hard to get in touch with them. She sends us reports when they can, you know, charge their phones, when there's internet, when, you know, they can contact uh, the outside world, which is sometimes only once a week or even less frequently. The situation is appalling. They're all sick. There's no medicine. They spend all of their time cold, trying to find fuel, trying to find water, trying to find food. Um, several of them are musicians, so they're playing for refugee children in one of the camps in, in Mawasi. Um, the families in different places, um, in, in the central and southern parts of Gaza. Some are in uh, Rafah, some are in, in Malasi. And they're in different places. The, 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 we're talking about a, an extended family of six or eight people. Um, I think they're in a couple of places right now. It's awful. The, situa- the situation is unspeakable. These are you know middle-class people with a comfortable house in Gaza City. They had to leave it multiple times. They moved around, and now they're probably... Uh, or maybe having to move yet again. So I hear from them via my niece. Um, and I hear from my brother, my niece, my nephew, my various, various family members uh, about the situation in Jerusalem and the West Bank, which is pretty dire as well. Not anything like the horrors of Gaza, but pretty dire. And I know that you, I ran into you and you had told me something about sending your books. Yeah, I had been sending books for, many, many months, a couple hundred maybe, to something that was established by a poet uh, called Musab Abu Taha, some of your listeners may have heard of, um, and who just managed to get out of Gaza. And he established the Edward Said Library in Gaza. And I think by the time the war started, he had established a couple of branches of it. And I had sent a couple of hundred um, books, as did, by the way, several of my colleagues here at Columbia who knew him, uh, to this library. Uh, The library has now been, as far as I know, destroyed, um, along with pretty much every other library in the Gaza Strip, along with every other university in the Gaza Strip, along with dozens and dozens and dozens and dozens of university personnel, two university presidents, a half dozen university deans, dozens of faculty and staff, and God knows how many students. As well, unfortunately, as the librarian, the woman who was in charge of it, she was killed in an airstrike that killed her and all of her family. Um, so that's the story of the Edward Said Library. I don't know what of it remains. I don't know how badly damaged it was. Uh, I can't. He doesn't answer me. He won't give me details. We know that Dua, the woman who was in charge, was killed. That's been. I mean, you've seen her name in the list of people killed and the other members of her family. I don't know exactly what happened to the library. My understanding is that it's either destroyed or damaged. 
But it's, that's only books. Uh, Darnell will never come back, but the books, who cares? It's just books. What does it feel like? I mean, I, I don't know if you can even put it into words, but you're this incredibly respected, established historian at Columbia. And yet, the people from whom you come are treated as disposable by the Israelis, but also by the enabling of your own government. What is it? Is it? Is there a disconnect between um, the way you're treated as an academic and the way you're seen as a Palestinian who's life doesn't matter in some ways. Like if you were there in Palestine now, instead of here, right, you would just be collateral damage. What is that? If I were in Gaza, yes. Yeah. (laughs) If I were in Gaza, that would be the case. And even in the West Bank, uh, life is more precarious than elsewhere. Um, What does it feel like? It's very alienating, especially on the part of our own government. Um, I mean, in Israel, you have a settler colonial process that's been marching on for generations, for more than a century. Um, that it, it's, it's what we, what we know, um, Palestinian life is not valued. Um, the tragic thing is that Palestinian life is not valued in this country or by our media or by our government. Uh, when I say in this country, not by everybody, but by certainly our elites by the New York times, uh, no. um, I could go on and on about the media, uh, the mainstream corporate legacy media, um, even by our university administration. Um, you know, we have here the only Center for Palestine Studies in the United States. We have here a dozen, two dozen faculty who are experts in what they do. Uh, some of them experts on Zionism, some of them experts on anti-Semitism, some of them experts on Palestine. None of them were ever consulted by the university when it takes measures, uh, such as a letter from some dean saying that uh, these these specific sets of words, intifada, by all means necessary harmful and hurtful and anti-Semitic and so on and so forth, uh, without anybody asking anybody who knows about anti-Semitism. They created a task force made up of three of the most, uh, headed, I should say, by three of the most committed partisans for Israel in the entire faculty, uh, which is supposed to deal with anti-Semitism. Most of whose members don't know anything about anti-Semitism. And we actually have a lot of people, faculty members, whose specialty it's among other things, anti-Semitism. Um, I mean, a couple of them were included, but most of the people there were chosen for obviously other reasons. So it feels, it feels alienating. Um, I don't feel that from my own colleagues. I certainly don't feel that from students. I don't feel that from my readers, people who write me about my public, my, my, my books. Uh, but certainly from our government, from and from the media, it's it's horrific uh, to see to know what the reality is. And to know the lying disinformation that passes for reality on, on, on television, for example, on NPR, uh, in the Times and the Post, and so uh, and, or from our university administration. And most of them are no different, or uh, Congress. I could go on. It, it's, it's extremely alienating, obviously. What are some of the myths, uh, lies, inaccuracies that are most frustrating for you to hear from the media or your administration or Congress? Well, I mean, let's just take a term like intifada. Intifada means 
rising up, shaking off. Um, in Palestinian political parlance, it's used to describe the two major uprisings against an illegal Israeli military occupation, which in 1987 had been going on for 20 years, and which in uh, 2000, during the second, when the second intifada started, um, had been going on for 33 years, and which has now been going on for 56 years. And if anything is legitimate, it's an uprising against an Israeli an illegal military occupation condemned by international law, the United Nations, and so on and so forth. But this has turned into a call for genocide in the twisted minds of the people who uh, tell us what we can say and can't say on campus or the, 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 the partisan hacks in Congress who you know, decreed that there was a call for genocide at Harvard and why didn't the president of Harvard? Nobody called for genocide at Harvard. That's not what that word means. It doesn't mean genocide. It means uprising. Uprising against what? Uprising against the Jewish people? No. Uprising against an illegal military occupation, which has now gone on for 56 years in July. In June, it'll be 57 years. So that's a typical example of the way this thing has been twisted. And that's the, if you ask 200 odd members of Republican members of Congress in lockstep like lemmings, they will say, yes, intifada means genocide. And I bet a whole lot of Democrats would go along with it. Um, so that's a, that's a typical example. Um, I could, I, I could give you many, many, many others. And in terms of media narratives that you find particularly damaging or, um, dangerous or untruthful? Well, a number of them. I mean, I don't know where to start. Um, one would be that the history started on the 7th of October, obviously did not something dramatic, something in many ways unprecedented. Something horrific happened on the 7th of October, and things considerably more horrific have been happening ever since. Whatever happened on October 7th uh, was, uh, was horrific, horrible massacre of civilians, largest civilian death toll in Israeli history since 1948. So it deserved all of the attention it got. But 25 times as many Palestinians have been killed as Israelis were killed on the 7th of October or immediately afterwards. And that does not get the same attention. 25 times as many, 29,000 and 8,000 missing, 29,000 dead and 8,000 missing. Most of them are civilians. 12,000 of them are children. More than half the population of Gaza are children. So the 68,000 wounded and the 28,000 dead and the 8,000 missing include a large proportion of children, maybe half of them, maybe a third of them. And then a lot of women and old men and, and, and civilians of other sorts. None of this, none of this is treated with a kind of loving, individuated attention that is given rightly to Israeli victims. So, you know, one 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 is aghast at the racism, at the at the, at the inherent disparity between the loving way in which Israeli children or Israeli women, civilians are are are, are treated in the media. And the callous way in which 25 times as many Palestinians, most of whom, again, as with the Israelis, most of whom are civilians, are, are not treated. They're just, they're, they're just, if they, if they accurately give the number, which the New York Times systematically did not do for weeks and weeks and months, if they give the number, it's just a number. You know, there's like, you know, 29,000 cockroaches, 29,000 whatever. Uh, whereas, as I've said, uh, other, other losses are individuated. Um, we've gotten this before. I mean, it's not, it's not unfamiliar. 
to anyone who looks at the coverage of the Iraq war. American soldiers, their deaths are individuated. The multiple, many times greater number of Iraqi civilian deaths are never, we rarely talk today. The same was the same in Vietnam, obviously, and, and, and so forth. That's the way it is in colonial wars. And this is, and this is a colonial war. <laughs> How so? When you listen to Israeli politicians saying we're going to resettle Gaza and we're going to occupy Gaza, what is that? What is that? It may be the land of Israel in their in their fantasies, in their imagination, but it's one people taking over the land of another people, which is what the whole business was about from Herzl to today. As 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 uh, Zeb Jabotinsky said, we're going to we're, the objective is to transform Palestine into the land of Israel, and that's what has been done systematically ever since. Right. What are your feelings about? Well, I've heard you speak very. Uh, passionately about Biden. What do you think of him? I've heard you say that you wouldn't vote for him. Why, what do you think motivates him? What motivates Joseph Biden? Well, I mean, I, I don't know. I don't know. Um, uh, I know what I read and I know, I mean, you know, I'm a trained historian. I read texts. So I read the, I can watch the body language and I can read the statements. That's, that's the best I can do. And from that evidence, I would say several things. The first is that this is a man who still lives in the 60s. As far as he's concerned, this idealized vision of Israel is Israel to this day. The second thing I could say is he's someone who has clearly been brainwashed by the Israeli politicians and the lobbyists who have focused on him for his entire life. Um, starting with Golda Meir. I mean, I heard her speak once. I've seen many t- I heard her speak when I was an undergraduate once upon a time. Um, same rule. Uh, I've seen her on television. She was charismatic, strange so it may be to see that she was attractive in a certain way. She wasn't good looking, but she had a charisma to her. Uh, she was extremely articulate, very smart. And From Milwaukee, is that correct? She grew up in Milwaukee, yeah. that's correct. She was born in, in what is now Ukraine, right. but she, um, she grew up in Milwaukee, her teenage years. And her, I think she arrived when she was eight or ten or something like that. Her American English was perfect, flawless. She understood the United States. She'd grown up in the United States and she emigrated to, to Palestine, in, I believe in her 20s. Um, and uh, he has described her impact on him. So we can go on what he said. I, I believe what he said. You know, he was taken by Golda. And I think he was similarly taken by a number of other Israeli politicians um, who, you know, many of them are, are particularly adept at speaking to, to Westerners. I mean, look, this is a project created by Europeans and Americans. There are many Eastern uh, Mizrahi Jews who are Israelis. So you have people from all over the Arab world, Iran, Turkey, and so on. But the people who founded it, the people who read it, the people, the signatories on the Declaration of Independence are Europeans and Americans by origin, by birth, by education, by training, by politicization, by integration into those societies before they decided they couldn't live there anymore and they went to Palestine. So for them, for a Herzl to speak to a German or an Austrian audience, for a, a Weizmann to speak to a British audience, for a Golda Meir to speak to an American audience, just to talk to an audience that's her or his audience. They're not talking to foreigners and they're not talking to a foreign culture. It's their culture. Even as they become Israelis, they're still in Netanyahu. I mean, he speaks with this perfect flat American accent. He grew up in Cornell and in Philly. I mean, he lived in Israel before and after, but he's an American as far as his acculturation is concerned. Um, so I, one can see how Biden will have been affected by that. 
Um, and I think he has a, a casual contempt for the Palestinians. I mean, many, many of the things he's said, he said are insulting and dehumanizing to the Palestinians. Uh, what he said about Palestinian casualties. Is I have no notion that the Palestinians are telling the truth about how many people are killed. I'm sure innocents have been killed. And it's the price of waging a war. I think we should be incredibly careful. I think not we, the Israelis should be incredibly careful to be sure that they're focusing on going after the folks that are the pro propagating this war against Israel. And, uh, and it's against their interest when that doesn't happen. But I have no confidence in the number that the Palestinians are using. So um, I think he's a man who decided uh, that um, support of Israel was an important part of his political you know, persona early on, I think. And there are many, many, many statements by him. If Israel didn't exist, we'd have to create it. I'm a Zionist and so on and so forth. This is not a casual part of his, of his political orientation or his ideology. Uh, and I think he surrounded himself with people like Blinken, with people like Sullivan, with the people, his chief of staff, all the people around him, a Praetorian guard uh, of, of people who think just like he does, who have a contempt for and an ignorance of the Arab world and of the Palestinians, who know and, and are concerned with Israeli uh, desiderata. Um, and who see them at least essentially through an Israeli lens. I mean, I, I sometimes would feel listening to him or to Admiral Kirby, his main spokesperson, the main spokesperson of the, of the, of the uh, National Security Council. Who's getting these an guys expanded are, role, apparently. That's breaking news. Yeah, uh, God help us. I know. God help us. I, I feel when I listen to him in particular, but the president and, and Sullivan and, 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 and Blinken, that they're reading off an Israeli teleprompter. They're saying things that the Israeli government, exactly what the Israeli government says. Exactly what the Israeli government said. Now they're beginning to diverge slightly from that script, probably for for callous, cold political reasons. I.e., you're going to lose Michigan. I.e., the youth vote. I.e., the black churches. I.e., I.e., not because they've suddenly seen Palestinians as human or they understand anything more than they did before. And what do you say to the people who I'm sure you've heard this many times, but Trump? Well. Uh, we are talking in this case about, as far as Palestine and the Middle East is concerned. Thanks again for listening to The Katie Helper Show. To hear the rest of that discussion, please join the Patreon at patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show. Again, that's patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show. If you like the show, please leave us a five-star review on iTunes. And as always, we remind you that this show could not happen without the support of our listeners. Our show is produced by me, Katie Halper. Brad Bloom is our audio engineer and an associate producer on the show. Our researcher is Joshua Bregman. And our theme song is by the band Cordova. See you next time. Bye.